This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. back with another episode of Art of Darkness, uh, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. Um, but we try to have fun, right, Kevin? Yeah, we try. Try. Sometimes. We don't always make it. We don't always get over. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, the great uh, Romanian philosopher, though he would um, he would have chafed at that term, uh, Emil I think it's you pronounce the middle name Mihai. So Emil Mihai Choran. We were actually just before we started this, having some conversation about how do you actually pronounce this stuff? Romanian is a little um, uh, it, it, to the American tongue. It's not obvious always how to pronounce this stuff. But I think we settled on Choran as being the way to pronounce this last name. Um, and to help us out, we have the uh, writer uh, Substacker. Is that a word? Can we call each other Substacker? It is now. Is that- it is now. Can do it. We just yeah. did it. Okay, your substacker, um, uh, Caleb Caudell. Um, I uh, thank you. First of all, thank you for coming on. Thank you for suggesting Choran. Great subject. Perfect subject for the show. As we're going to see, um, I guess first before we get into stuff, let's just talk uh, a little housekeeping. Please, um, if you're enjoying the show, if you've been listening along with us, uh, hop on Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod. Um, Right now, for $3, you can get in. You'll get the After Dark episodes. That's a 20 to 30 minute extra bonus content episode for every episode we release. Um, And you also get quarterly recaps, which are just a lot of fun. And you'll get uh, access to the Bookends Reading Club that we're starting in 2023. Um, Join the book club. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good stuff. First on the docket is uh, we're reading Heart of Darkness. So, Heart um, of Darkness. And I have to say, this isn't homework. The book club, no. you choose your level of engagement. Right. With, it's like Fight Club. That's right. But you do talk about Art of Darkness. Please yeah. do. And the yeah. book club. We also have yeah. an Eyes Wide Shut, my favorite Christmas movie, uh, watch party coming up mm-hmm. later in December. And mm-hmm. the information on that is on Patreon, patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod, and on the website, artofdarkpod.com. Calm. Was there anything else about uh, kind of housekeeping you wanted to mention before? Uh, yeah. Telegram. Telegram. Uh, we have a very active Telegram. It's a fun place to hang out. You never know what's going to happen in the Art of Darkness Telegram. One of our, our friends there today said that the three euros he spent on the Patreon this year was the best money he spent all year. And hey, I thought that we appreciate your fungible, funny euro money. Thank you very <laughs> much. Uh, it, it, hey, it's, it's, it has parody with the greenback. Sure. So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's right up there. Doing better than crypto right now. Uh, but we're also going to for the eyes wide shut watch party, we're going to open the chat in Telegram, have everybody muted, but yeah. y'all will be able to listen in live as we do. We're going to try it. Uh, yeah, listen yeah. in live while we do uh eyes wide 
shut. Great movie. Uh, I want to uh, give Dex, room with our yeah. friend Dexter De La Paz is coming up. Dexter De La Paz, friend that. of the show. Yeah. We should give. Uh, let's give uh, Caleb the floor to tell us a little bit about uh, his novel and his writing and where you can find him too. Okay. Yeah, I have released one novel so far. My debut is, is called The Neighbor. Came out in May of 2021. And it was released by a small press, Bonfire Books. They are based in Australia. Uh, hmm. They do an excellent job. And I write what I call Midwestern Gothic. I'm influenced by Southern Gothic literature, Faulkner, O'Connor, uh, William Gay. And it's a, the novel, The Neighbor, is a, a gritty story about a working class guy who has to take off from his dilapidated squalid conditions and it's told in a dual narrative structure it goes back and forth in time and apart from that i maintain a sub stack i do fairly regular entries about once a week once every two weeks and that centers on my own experience as a modern man trying to make my way in modern life I work in the service industry, so it's mostly kvetching. It's a lot of complaining, <laughs> I hope. But uh, I, I incorporate some references to classic literature, philosophy, but uh, try not to be too high-handed or high-minded or heavy-handed about it. Hmm. And where can people find that? Where can people find the Substack? The Substack can be found at middleamericanliterature.substack.com, I think. Although yeah, I'm right. not sure that's the exact right. URL, but that's I'm on Twitter, uh, lit middle, uh, capital L I T, capital M I D D L E, lit middle, yeah. right on. And I will put a link to this in the show notes. I, growing up in North Dakota, had a style you might describe as Midwest Gothic. <laughs> yeah, I spent a I, lot of money at Hot Topic. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, the, the Midwest is underappreciated in some ways of course hmm. there, are, there are some literary greats that stem from the midwest so you've got fitzgerald hemingway theodore dreiser uh, hmm. kurt vonnegut is actually from indianapolis where i live now hmm. so there are a lot of uh, major figures from the area but it's still it, there's the term flyover state yeah and and, and the south get, has that reputation for producing a lot of really powerful and important literary figures but the the midwest uh it can it can punch its weight yeah That's yeah no right. we're we're both middle we're, we're both midwestern guys too i mean i'm in michigan um yeah so i it's funny you mentioned that i actually and i don't think this journal exists anymore unfortunately the first piece of work i ever had published anywhere was published in a magazine called midwestern gothic i think they have okay. since sort of disappeared but but I, yeah I, I've never even heard that term until yeah. <laughs> I started using it, but everything, of course, is already in circulation. So sure, yeah, no, it, it's great, and I do think as soon as you say that, I feel like I know exactly what he's talking about. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I've spent mm -hmm. so much time, you know, and and I should say too, I I haven't, um, unfortunately, I haven't made my way all the way through the neighbor. A lot of reading going on for this show, but um, it's I really do recommend it to everybody. It's it's it moves. It's compelling. It, it's well written. Uh, it's uh, yeah. I, I mean, the thing I started kind of thinking about a little bit was it reminded me 
somewhat of no country for old men not in any kind of derivative way but just in yeah. the, the vibe and the and yes. the, the looming threat and the all of that desolation so. the starkness yeah mm -hmm. the surroundings yeah the cormac mccarthy influence is very strong with me too although it's slightly complicated and i don't want to become too tangential here yeah. because i i think in some ways he's <clears throat> actually somewhat overrated especially Blood Meridian, we don't have to get into it, but yeah. uh, we will next year in the book club get deeply into Blood Meridian with yeah. friend of the show, Aaron Gwynn. Yeah, go oh, on. I, there's a lot to say about it, and it, it, it is an incredible work in, in some ways, but I also have some criticisms of it. But Cormac McCarthy is an influence, and it makes a lot of sense that you would read my book and see some of that in there. No Country mm -hmm. for Old Men. It's, that's going a little bit farther down the line. of it, It's almost like a screenplay. I agreed. Yeah. But uh I, I do also write, I think most of us write at least somewhat cinematically at this point, just mm -hmm. from the influence of visual or film culture now. But yeah, you can't help it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can't be helped. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm glad you're enjoy, you've enjoyed the book or enjoying it. Uh, mm -hmm. I wrote it, even I have these very heavy literary influences, and I like treating literature as homework, but I didn't want to write a work that felt like homework either. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and it's been nice because a lot of people I, I've shown my stuff to people who don't read. They really don't. And not saying that in some sort of judgmental or pretentious way, they, they simply don't read, but they yeah. will read my stuff and they'll be able to digest it and consume it. Very oh yeah, no, that makes sense. It's very, uh, yeah, it's very, it's it's very accessible, and that's not a diminutive at all. It's just, it's, it's, it's. I I, I vibe with what you're saying too, because some of my favorite books are like very complicated, what people mm -hmm. would call dense and stuff, and it's I true. don't really try to replicate that in my own writing yeah. at all. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. So I think this is the part in the show where we kick off with the opening question, Brad. That's right. Yes. Then we tease the After Dark for Patreon. And yes. I think one of the things we should go into more deeply on the After Dark is uh, Caleb and his work. And yeah, absolutely. Basically. So um, Caleb, thank you so much for joining us on this and helping us cover this figure who I know nothing about, but you still have to ask, I gotta the, ask question, the question. You're in good company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Kev, Kevin, what do you know about E.M. Choron? Romanian. <laughs> Romanian. Uh, okay. <laughs> That's accurate. Un unusual name for Anglos to pronounce. Yeah. yeah. So so you know basically what we Romanian. <laughs> we were we were looking at the we were looking at the the episode art before we started kevin was like is this him like just no yeah. no reference at all so that's By good. the great pineal colada uh, right. who helps us with all of the art if you want to see the her work writ large it's at the website artofdarkpod.com that's a good way to get it but also spotify does a really good job of that's pulling in all of the uh unique show art she does for every core subject i think this is core subject 39 we've covered now brad uh it sounds Something right 38 like or that yep. yeah so we are in the thick of it thank you peniel for your for your assistance and that is all i know brad so what are we going to talk right. about on the after dark yeah so what we're going to talk about on the after dark is uh we're going to read some not very easy to get your hands on writing from choron in praise of hitler oh well Duh, too soon <laughs> yeah we're going to talk oh. about his Kanye West moment now I want to be clear okay. later on Wait. in life he disavowed all of this so ah. this is as a young angry man 
in the midst of it all happening. We're going to talk more about it, but we'll actually in the after dark, we'll talk about it a little bit as it comes up in the main episode. But in the after dark, we're actually going to go right to the source. And what did he, what was he actually saying about this? So, ah, but are his beats fire? Uh, no, that's the thing. His beats are whack. Oh. No. Oh, his beats. Know. Okay, all right. <laughs> very good. That is a great after dark tease. Yeah. That is very yeah. spicy. So yes. Yeah, okay. What sure. else is that? Yeah. What else? Yeah. That's 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 it. So okay. let's just and jump we'll, into it. Yeah, we'll get into Caleb's work more as well on the on the after dark. I'm sure it'll come up naturally in the conversation mm-hmm. too. So very excited. Sure. Okay, here we go. Let's rock. Yeah. So I'm just going to read you the Wikipedia like the first couple sentences bio because it's a reasonably good in- introduction. But it's also we're going to see that almost every part of it is not as simple as it sounds, right? As we as we continue on. So Emil Mihai Choran, uh, born in uh, April 8th, 1911, uh, died in uh, June 20th, 1995, was a Romanian philosopher, aphorist, and essayist who published works in both Romanian and French. His work has been noted for its pervasive philosophical pessimism, style, and aphorisms. His works frequently engaged with issues of suffering, decay, and nihilism. So fun stuff, mostly. Um, yeah. So if I went to the the horse races and those were three horses, I bet I bet on the trifecta or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Suffering decay <laughs> and suffering turns the bed. And oh, but here comes stylus from the back. That's awesome. So, Very nice. So um, I want to give it before we get too deep into it. I want to give the the I want to give folks a sense of what it's like to read some Choran. So Caleb, I don't know if you, do you have a passage that's kind of representative of a Choran gem? I do have a passage and okay. I, I think it is representative. Although first of all, Choran is extremely underappreciated. I think I very rarely hear him mentioned even among people. It, you can put him in this lineage that maybe starts with, Schopenhauer and then extends to Nietzsche. And then he's considered to be the heir of this line of European extreme pessimism and nihilism. Although he is mentioned far less frequently than Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. Nietzsche is is almost a pop figure. And that's not even, I don't say that in a disparaging way, but he's fairly popular Mm. and has been for some time. Nietzsche or Chauran is much more obscure, Mm -hmm. but, uh, (laughs) Yeah, I had I had knew the name, but I hadn't and had maybe read some passages. I think I listened to an interview on Hermetics podcast or something like that about Charon in the past. And as I was getting into reading it, I was like, oh, this guy, this guy's for real, which he he is is like, yeah, no. Yeah. And and, and that's always such a bracing encounter. Right. When that when that happens, when you discover someone who is the real deal and yet still hasn't received a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. But uh, within within his body of work. I'm going to read a passage from, for an underappreciated figure, I'm going to read a passage from a book that is also, I think, underappreciated. It's from History and Utopia. And it came out uh, maybe 1960. It was at this hinge point, late 50s, early 60s. And he he wrote uh, works that were composed of both aphorisms and essays. And some works, which were a combination of aphorisms and essays. This is going to be an excerpt from an essay. Uh, History and Utopia, maybe in French, is his most explicitly political work, although I would hesitate to characterize him as a political thinker. He's, he's always in the ballpark, but he's so intensely personal, too. It doesn't really work to, to call him a, a political thinker. But th- this, deals, this work deals a little bit more overtly with politics, 
but you still, you get a taste. What I'm going to read, I think will give you an idea of not so much, not only his themes or his, his obsessions, but also his, the way he works with language, his lyricism, and also the intensity of his prose, which I think would strike anyone upon reading anything that he does. But I think that these passages are, are especially powerful. This is uh, from an essay entitled Odyssey of Rancor. So you already have a little bit of an idea of what you're getting into here. Oh, his little titles are great too. The oh, titles of his interviews yeah. are so good. Yeah. yeah. All right. <clears throat> We spend the prime of our sleepless nights in mentally mangling our enemies, rending their entrails, wringing their veins, trampling each organ to mush, and charitably leaving them the skeleton to enjoy. Whereupon we forbear, overcome by fatigue, and drop off to sleep. A well-earned rest after so much scruple, so much zeal. Moreover, we must recover our strength in order to begin all over again the next night, resuming a labor that would discourage the most Herculean butcher. No doubt about it, having enemies is no sinecure. The program of our nights would be less crowded if by day we could give our resentment free reign. To achieve not even happiness, merely equilibrium, we need to liquidate a good number of our kind to inflict a regular hecatome in the fashion of our remote and relaxed ancestors. Not so relaxed, it will be objected. The caveman's demographic poverty denying him any continuous opportunity for slaughter. So be it. But he had compensations. He was better provided for than we are. Rushing off to hunt at all hours, falling upon wild beasts. It was still his own species he was destroying. Blood baptized, he could readily indulge his frenzy. No need for him to disguise and defer his sanguinary intentions. Whereas we are doomed to review and repress our lust for rapine till it shrivels within us, reduced to curbing, to postponing, even to renouncing our revenge. Uh, may I go on a little bit more at length? Sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. To forswear vengeance is to chain oneself to forgiveness, to founder and pardon, to be tainted by the hatred smothered within, spared, our enemy obsesses and aggrieves us, especially when we have resolved to abhor him no longer. Indeed, we truly forgive him only if we have promoted or witnessed his fall, if he affords us the spectacle, spectacle of an ignominious end or supreme reconciliation, if we contemplate his corpse. Such happiness, in truth, is rare and not to be relied on, for our enemy is never felled, always erect, always triumphant, it is his nature to loom up before us, flouting our timid jibes by his full-blown scorn. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's intense, right? Like, yes. <laughs> yeah, and this is, I mean, this is the thing I think we'll see as we read more passages is he is not, he, I mean, we talk about this shows being about the dark side of creativity, right? So he is almost always playing in that territory in the yes. sort of the muck and the blood and the like uh as, yeah. dark as you can get i think it, it i really I don't is. think it's possible to top him for intensity scathing violence mm -hmm. dramatic theatrical yeah. yeah it's almost like it's almost like if you uh um i've been thinking about these like prompt engineering has been on my mind a lot with all this ai stuff going on and i thought before we sat right before i sat down it's like 
Chiron is like if you told the AI, it wouldn't do as good of a job. But if you told the AI, can you make like mash up like existential philosophy and straight up horror? Like, yeah, right. right. Like, because it, it has the it's, it's aesthetically almost like reading horror at times. It's true. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like very... a, almost a slasher yeah. <laughs> grindhouse movie right. with existentialist philosophy. Yeah. 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 It's pretty, it's pretty intense. So we're going to get into the biography. I don't know. I like a good mystery. I like a, <laughs> a good page turner myself. Wow. Sure. That was, no, that was wild. That was intense. Yeah. yeah. What was yeah. that? What was that from? That was from, was from history and utopia. Yeah. And That's it's okay. an essay called Odyssey of Rancor. Okay. Yeah. We got and, ourselves a deep thinker here. Yes. Go on. <laughs> yeah, go sure. on, Caleb. No, w- w- one of the things that I love so much about Chauron is, is how he calls attention to these violent, hateful impulses that I'm sure it, it varies uh, among different human beings, but uh, he brings us right back to this. What? he would probably consider, and I would consider this core of sadism, violence, hatred, something that animates us and, and also reminds us of our, of this embodied condition that we're in because mm-hmm. philosophy all too often is dealing with all of these abstractions, these rarefied notions. And he's working with those as well. He's, he's often using these terms like being time, uh, things that you words that you'll see in textbooks that'll be treated in a much more dry or abstract way, but he's then wedding it to these animalistic urges and instincts, and reminding us that for as much as we may want to elevate ourselves above this state, this animalistic state, we are we're chained to it. That we we still we can read philosophy all day long, and we can contemplate these elevated notions, but we have violent instincts. We we're hateful beings. I mean, not all the time, maybe. And of course there's exaggeration and there's inflection there, but we're, we're, there's a part of us that is very violent and dominating and loathing and loathsome. And, and philosophy pretends generally tends to pretend that part doesn't really exist. Yeah, or that it can be transcended through knowledge. You know, if you read Mm -hmm. enough and you engage in dialectic uh, with enough S, then you won't. But but I but I like the crankiness of it too. And there's something (laughs) about that 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 resonates with me very much. Is Mm -hmm. is that uh, for as much as I read and think of of these these very uh, rarefied ideas, I I still I, I. I'm irritated so easily by things. And, and yeah, even these contests that you get into with neighbors and people that you move among, you, you, it's very common to, I mean, I think all of us have these murderous Hmm. daydreams and reveries. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really think this is great and not often discussed. How many great careers have been motivated by spite Mm-hmm. Yes, and no, a desire for revenge. I'll show them. Yeah. Right? Yeah, envy, mm-hmm. fight, loathing, uh, and this this uh this elaborates on a Nietzschean idea. Really, I mean, this is maybe more so originally Nietzschean. The if you go back to the genealogy of morals, uh, he elaborates this idea of how 
uh, consciousness really, or like the human conscience is a product of this process of domesticating man that, you know, originally we are violent, appropriative, bloodthirsty beasts, but through this long drawn out process of acculturation and domestication, our violent impulses and instincts are, they're not eliminated, but rather they're turned inward. And yes. for the most part, then we lacerate and lash out at ourselves and we develop this higher awareness of ourselves as guilty, sinful creatures. And, and, and that is something that Charon is always playing on or he's hearkening back to. He's extend, it's, it's very Nietzschean. It is an, a Nietzschean inheritance. I think he's much more dramatic and lyrical and accomplished in a literary sense, even than Nietzsche was. I mean, Nietzsche was also much more literarily enjoyable than most philosophers, but I think Iran takes that even farther. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I want to give uh, a little bit just to further paint this picture of who this guy is we're talking about. Um, and we'll get into the bio in a second. I just want a, a comment from the great um, Susan Sontag talking about Tehran. Um, mm-hmm. And she says, quote, our response to the collapse of philosophical systems in the 19th century was the rise of ideologies, aggressively anti-philosophical systems of thought, taking the form of various, quote, positive or descriptive sciences of man. Comte, Marx, Freud, and the pioneer figures of anthropology, sociology, and linguistics immediately come to mind. Another response to the debacle was a new kind of philosophizing, personal, even autobiographical, aphoristic, lyrical, anti-systematic. Its foremost examples, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein. Sorry. Sorry, Kevin. (laughs) Joran is the most distinguished figure in this tradition writing today. So she was writing this while Joran was still alive, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to give you a quick. I just want to tell you uh, because I love his titles. Uh, We're going to talk about his titles almost. uh, I've got a little game for you, Kevin, later to do with some of his chapter titles. But here's some of the. I'm ready. here are some of the books that he wrote in French. So he had a Romanian period and a French period. Um, Short History of Decay, All Gaul is Divided, The Temptation to Exist, History and Utopia, The Fall into Time. That's my favorite of the stuff I've been reading so far. Uh, a book called The Evil Demiurge or The New Gods in English, uh, The Trouble with Being Born, Drawn and Quartered, uh, anathemas and admirations <laughs> and then everything after that i think is mostly like notes and letters and things like hey that. my name's emil charon i'm available for children's parties bar <laughs> mitzvahs sweet 16s yeah, yeah. May, I, may i call attention right now to mm-hmm. the musical quality of his language but more specifically his book titles mm-hmm. and also essay titles and, and chapter titles it, and, and also, I want to point out how we're dealing with a figure whose native language is Romanian and then wrote the bulk of his work in French. And now we are receiving it in English and it still sings. Yeah. Yeah, it does actually survive translation pretty well. I'd, I mean, I'd love to read it in the original French, too, Yeah, if I read French. But yeah, but yeah right. it does. It still, it's still absolutely packs a punch. And I've read a lot of stuff in translation and it doesn't always, you know... Sometimes you get to the point where like, I'm just kind of getting the information out of this. Like it's yeah. really not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is not the case, but you're on for sure. Um, yeah. Let's hop into the bio here. So um, 
So Charan grows up, uh, we said he was born in 1911. Um, he grows up in this tiny little town actually referred to as a, a commune um, called Rushinari. And I'm going to do my best with the Romanian pronunciations, folks, if you're listening to this and you're, you know, Romanian, I'm sorry if I'm screwing it up. I did look up the pronunciations and I am trying. Um, this is in a region that uh, we know as Transylvania, actually. So he's he's really a Transylvania because um, when he was born there, it was actually part of the Kingdom of Hungary. Um, so, you know, when he was born, it would have been Hungarian, essentially. But clearly, in, he's clearly in a Roman, Romanian lineage and, and the place is now in what would be called Romania. Yeah. Slap the fact that you're Transva uh, Transylvanian right on your grad school application. Yeah. You're immediately in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Wow. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. 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 We haven't had a Transylvanian here for a long time. What I happened think, to the last one? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people probably think it's a fictional place. Mm. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if somebody thought, oh, I thought that was just like a Dracula thing. I didn't even know that was a real place. <laughs> right out not... of the slush pile. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> um, so, OK, so he's born in this little town and it's a very it's a very idyllic ch childhood. I mean, he will later in life kind of lament the fact that he ever had to leave, despite the fact that he kind of he has a love hate relationship with Romania proper, which we're going to talk about because it's it's actually critical to his identity as a person and a writer. Um, but it's this, you know, he has this lovely childhood. Um, his father is a Romanian Orthodox priest and his mother is the head of the local women's league. So in this little town, they're they're sort of prominent figures because it's a little town. There's only so prominent you can get. You know what I mean? But still um they're you know they they have one of the nicer houses in town he's their father's a respected figure all of the you know intellectuals and things of the town would come to their house at times um and he uh he had a older sister and a younger brother now i'm just going to tell you what ends up happening to those two right now because it's it doesn't even fit into the biography because choran is like gone from here eventually and really never comes back but so his sister, um, well, sir, sorry, his brother, his brother would later serve seven years in, pr in prison under the communist regime. So the communists are at this point, 1911, they're far off in the future, but they are coming, right? You can kind of hear the hoofbeats of the communist horde eventually coming to take over Romania, but it will be a while before we get there. So his brother serves time in prison, is eventually released and lives a long life in, in, um, in, uh, Rashanara. Um, his sister, his young, um, his, his, uh, older sister would eventually marry this well-to-do notary public. Um, and then when the communists show up, they have to turn their house over to the communist party and it becomes a courthouse. Sometime after that, she is jailed, um, probably for, you know, putting up a fuss of some kind. Um, and, uh, and a son of hers, um, ends up hanging himself. Um, this is Choran's nephew and two of her children, two of her gra uh, grandchildren, I'm sorry. So these would be Choran's uh, grand nephews or nieces, um, basically die of alcoholism. So it's not, you know, there's, you have this image of this idyllic childhood, but then the, the, the political realities of this region, which are difficult to even keep track of, honestly, we're going to touch on it where we can, but it's, it's very complicated. Um, the political realities of this basically destroy these lives. And in fact, Toron's childhood, he refers to it as idyllic. He talks about, oh, I was raised by the river. The river raised me, right? 
I could go out into the woods. I could do anything I want. If you dig into it a little bit further, it turns out the reason that he was so free was when he was for several years as he was a small child was both of his parents were political prisoners at the time. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he had like a, he had like his grandmother who was like trying to maintain a household of like a bunch of kids. And so, you know, she couldn't do everything. So coming attractions, people, let's go more free. Had my parents been in jail. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah. Now we'll talk about the region a little bit because I got fascinated with Romania by doing this research. And I've, I have to admit, I didn't know a whole lot about Romania. Um, and I, I still don't know a whole lot, but I know enough to know that I'm kind of captivated by this place now. Um, there's uh, the one thing about it is Romania and even like the town that he would live in later. People have lived in Romania for a long time for like since like 9500 bc the the second town he lives in which we'll get to um has been continuously occupied since 9500 bc right so it's just these very long like you know thracians uh, had like sort of headquarters in this part of the world and the bogomils and like it's just a long 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 history of you know like i said 9500 years 12000 years basically that people have continuously lived in this region um yeah. So you imagine how deep those think, tendrils go. I almost think there's an association with a, something ancient about the region. And mm-hmm. there is an obscurity there, too. I, I, th- mm-hmm. I think it's very common to not know a lot about that region, but to have mm-hmm. some vague sense that it has been crisscrossed by all of these invading groups and has been settled and resettled. And there, there's there's something very old, longstanding about it, but mm-hmm. without a lot of very specific knowledge at the same time. Yeah, right, right. And it it's um the the um biographer, Toron's biographer, which we're gonna we're gonna read from this book a bit. Um it's a very it's very well done. It's uh called Searching for Turan. It's by um Ilinka Zarafopol Johnston. Sorry, my sound's going in and out a little bit. Um she who's a Romanian writer, um, and she actually spent some time with Turan in his later years, sort of right at the end of his life. So so it's qu- quite well done. She refers to um she refers to being born in Romania as being born into a land where birth was considered a curse. <laughs> yeah. And okay. she's Romanian, right? This is not me saying this. This is her saying this. And Turan had that feeling too. I mean, he would have this sense of like, why am I like, he thought it was basically a curse to be born in Romania of one sort or another. It's he would refer to it as being completely historically insignificant. There's no point. Almost like there's no point to being born here. Is kind of was kind of his attitude for a while. Yeah, it's almost considered a, or could be looked at as an auxiliary region. It's a, it's an outpost of sorts. It's it's always mm-hmm. it factors into all of these other empires' exploits, but mm-hmm. it, it's never a, a central player. It, it's it's never as significant as maybe the people who are from the region would like it to be. It's it, it's yeah and. And, and when, he'd over it. Yeah. And when you look at the history, it's history in the, the a lot of its history in the 20th century, it's basically being used by one group or another for for yeah. at, for at, to get advantage, basically. Um, um, so let me read just a little bit. Um, so uh, many jokes I could make right now. I'm just going to let that <laughs> win. I'm going to let that sit. I, okay. I began to realize we had our Spotify year in re- recap and it's like, oh, you've yeah. been heard in 68 countries. And I'm yeah. looking at the map and I was I was trying to think of a place that I could mock. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I'm just going to let it sit. Listeners or yeah. Romanian readers. That's uh, yeah, it's uh, under <laughs> underappreciated. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, well, yeah. You know, maybe, you know, we were talking about the Midwest and how it's considered flyover. Maybe the Midwest is the uh, Romania. Uh, that's the what I was going to say. It sounds a little bit like Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> trampled over. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let me read this. Let me read this bit. Um, again, this is from Searching for Tehran uh, by Ilyinka. Z- I don't know how to pronounce that name. Zerifapol Johnston. She must have married an American. Um, uh, the history of the village. This is Rashinar. This is where Tehran is born. And his dad was the, the, the Romanian Orthodox priest of the village. Um, the history of the village's fight to pre- preserve its independent status is the history of a centuries-long unequal fight between the ever-richer ri- and more powerful Saxons of Sibiu, encroaching upon the rights of the unprotected Romanians. That's another town nearby. It, uh, it involved the gradual ro- erosion of the Romanians' land-owning privileges, and despite fierce resistance, their steady slide into serfdom. In the region, the peasants from Rashinara have a reputation for toughness and meanness, an invidious reflection of their positive character traits, seriousness, intelligence, and pride. Unlike Romanian pe- peasants elsewhere, shyly humble, used to all kinds of masters, the peasant from Rashinara is supposed to be proud, independent, and loath to ask for favors or do humiliating work. Charan, however, has no words of praise for the patriotism and resilience of the Rashinari peasants, nor does he praise their intelligence. On the contrary, when he Excuse me. When he does praise them as a group, he praises them for their superstitiousness. <laughs> when oh, here's one more bit. When electricity was brought to the village, Turan recalled with delight and delighted amusement the peasants crossed themselves and called it quote the work of the devil. When it was installed in his father's church, the general consternation was such that people believed the end of the world had come. They were right. They were right. <laughs> those are healthy instincts. <laughs> I mean, it is. You should. Yeah. You don't want to just be. You don't want to be the early adopter of everything. You know, no, you got to. You want to yeah. be the uncritical adopter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, when Neuralink finally shows up, I'm yeah. going to be acting just like them. This is the work of the devil. You're going to wait for other people to get brain damage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So. Uh, okay. So. We're talking this is sort of the town that he's from right now he does love he loved his childhood and he laments again he laments the fact that he ever had it's almost not so much that he laments having to leave that village i think he laments not being a child anymore and i think yeah. he kind of is kind of projecting that onto onto that time um uh because because he also sort of hates romania in a way right he he, yes. he wanted to not be from there and he also didn't want to be there so yeah, because of its backwater status or the fact that it's yeah mm-hmm. not a major player on the world historical stage right 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 exactly i didn't so, ask to be born in chippewa falls right that's <laughs> right yeah and i think he thought there's nothing you can't be you know you can't accomplish anything you can't be a player in the world if you're from yeah. this place right i yeah. i relate to this Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, now well, later on, he would kind of stop caring about being a player in the world. But good. as a That's, as a young man, it's yeah. you know it's significant. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to read this little thing about when he was five years old. Um, he he describes this later on in his notebooks. This this collection of of writings that was published in France in the seventies. Um, he had this mystical experience that stuck with him for a long time. Um, I think that's one thing, too, is I don't know if we've stressed it enough. He was a bit of a mystic, and we're going to talk about how he got himself into that spot. But here, first... What religious or, or Orthodox? You said it was Romanian, Russian Orthodox? Romanian, Romanian, Romanian Orthodox. Orthodox. Okay, all right. And I, I'm not in a position to tell you what the difference is between Romanian and Russian, or I don't really know the doctrinal differences. All but... of a part in that region. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is about his mystical experience at five years old. 
um, again, from searching for Tehran. He first became aware of time at precisely three o'clock on a lazy summer afternoon when he was five years old. Like Wordsworth and Cumberland, this was a, quote, spot of time, which Tehran chose as his self-defining moment. The world suddenly emptied before his very eyes. While his village slumbered in the heavy heat and with only the buzz of drones to disturb their, the stillness in the air, he felt with a, quote, sort of unbearable anxiety. Sorry, he felt busy with this sort of unbearable anxiety. Everything around him lost its meaning as if it had vanished. Time became still yet palpable. It felt as if it had stopped flowing and was, quote, detaching itself from things. The world suddenly felt solitary, engulfed in an essential void. The experience lasted perhaps 10 minutes, like an epileptic fit or mystical ecstasy, yanking him from animal sleep into human insomnia, his adult malaise. We're going to talk about his insomnia, too. Um, a heightened, torturing consciousness of time. His real birth was not his biological one. If his trip to school in Sibiu at uh, age 10 severed him from his home place, his, quote, fall into time occurred on that lazy summer afternoon five years earlier when he first experienced time as an extraordinary frisson of spleen, a dis profoundly disturbing feeling and a, cl uh, and a complaisance à la nuit. Sorry, some French. I don't have any French. Um, to which he became so addicted that one could say of him what St. Simon said of Louis XV, he was born bored. Okay, so um, so yeah, so five-year-old, a lot, a lot of stuff going on in, in young Emile's head at five years old, right? Having these full-on mm -hmm. mystical experiences that completely and irrevocably change his relationship to time and himself. Um, uh, I, I want to read to you, there's, there's not a lot of interviews with Charan, but I did find one kind of just on this guy's website, apparently, who went and interviewed him in the 80s. It's very good. Um, it's by a guy named Jason Weiss. Uh, and uh, I think the website is like itinerariesofthehummingbird.com. He's got these, these various interviews. So let me read this a little bit. This is Tehran speaking, but later in his life, I think it's in the early 1980s. Um, uh, I consider my best writing to be those uh, few pages on time there in that book. Oh, you know what? Sorry, this is not... Is this the right one I want? Okay, sorry. A man who acts, who is involved in doing something, he doesn't think about time. That's absurd. But the consciousness of time proves that you are outside of time, that you've been ejected. One could really call it a philosophical, a metaphysical experience. Now, I'll tell you, I recall the first occasion in my life when I had a revelation of time. I was a child. I was five. And I remember exactly. It was an afternoon during the First World War. I can even say the hour. I remember it was three in the afternoon. Abruptly, I felt like I was watching time pass, that I wasn't part of it. I was outside. So this is this is a big moment for him. And it, it, the book, the fall, excuse me, the fall into time is pretty profound in this regard. I mean, it's him still wrestling with this this whole thing decades later. Um, <clears throat> um, let's see. So at 10 years old, he gets sent off. He's he's born and raised until the age of 10 in this little town, Roshanara. then he gets sent to the like next largest nearest town called Sibiu. Um, and this was, his father wanted him to go there to get a better education. Um, World war one is effectively over. And now there's a whole, there's all kinds of different ideas about what should happen in Romania in terms of education, in terms of political, uh, politically and everything. It's all sort of in flux at the moment. And the idea was that if he goes to Sibiu, he'll get a much better education. Should LeBron um, go to the Heat? Should he go to uh, <laughs> the Lakers? Should he right. stay in Cleveland? Right. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Stay in Cleveland. Um, so um, 
Okay, so but, but he he sort of never forgave his father for sending him there from take kind of tearing him out of this little village. Um, and, you know, he would sort of lament that he basically says this is that's the moment that he stopped being a child was when they shipped him off to Sibiu. And he had to live in like a he lived in like a boarding house with a bunch of other Romanian kids from the hills. And Ooh. remember, he's like he's from a family. His father's a priest. He's pretty well educated for a 10 year old, you know, and he's in there. With he's all thinking about the nature of time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he's in there with a bunch of time. Right. And he's in there with a bunch of just ruffians from the hill from the hills, you know, because yeah. um, he sort of fits in with them demographically, but it doesn't quite. It's Romanian rednecks, as we. <laughs> yeah. I'm inserting the Leo pointing. Jeff, <laughs> see it. <laughs> yeah. No boarding school though, but oh, yeah, and mm-hmm. the whole boarding school world—that uh, oh, was yeah. the the standard. It was either yep. homeschooling or boarding. We we act like this current system we have is just uh, permanent. Normal. And, sure. No. Yeah. 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 Um, let me read another quote here from uh about this time from Searching for Tron. <clears throat> he had felt homeless ever since the day he left his village in the Carpathian Mountains. This is when he's 10 and they send him off to Sibiu to go to secondary school in the nearby uh, old German town. Uh, now, 40 years had passed. This is him talking 40 years later, obviously. Now, 40 years had passed and he could not forget the feeling of estrangement he experienced then. He saw himself a sturdy, fair-haired child of 10 dressed in the stiff new school uniform, sitting on a load of hay in the back of a horse-drawn cart. His parents sat on the box in front. Though a priest, his father had uh, enough of the peasant left in him to drive the horses himself. His robust back, draped in priestly black robes, rose straight and massive in front of his son's eyes like an insurmountable obstacle or a terrible menace. The cart advanced slowly in the blue haze of an early September morning. The villagers on their way to their fields stopped and respectively lifted their hats to greet them. They stared after the cart. The village priest's son was going away to school, like a wedding or a funeral. It was an event worthy of their attention." So this is kind of a big deal. You kind of put your hopes in this kid. You send him off, and you know you hope you hope something happens good. He gets a good education. He, you know, it's not clear if they wanted him to be a priest or not. Um, that was probably never going to happen. Um, yeah. Now, a little bit about just like a little bit of a picture of his personality at this time because we haven't really quite talked about that. Um, he would describe himself as a boy as having these fundamental. Um, contradiction by drawing attributes from his mother and his father. So his mother was capricious. He would refer to her as degenerate, actually. I don't know if that word weighs as much for him as it does for Ouch. us. Ouch. Um, yeah. Probably more. <laughs> Maybe. Gracious. Yeah. 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 That was based on. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, it's hard. To, he doesn't really write a whole lot about her, but apparently at one point, and this comes up a little later when he's a teenager, Jaron is moping around so much that his mother says to him, if I knew how unhappy you were, you were going to be, I would have aborted you. Yeah. That had a major impact on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He cites that as yeah. a, as a pivotal moment in his life. Yeah. Well, also, and supposedly it led him to realizing that uh, he shouldn't take his life so seriously at the same time. Although yeah. the, the importance that he attaches to that moment belies his supposed interpretation of <laughs> right right the, the statement yeah, yeah this reminds me of the crowley episode don't call your your son the great beast from revelations <laughs> yeah. don't tell yeah. your son yeah. you would have aborted him yeah. you're right. you're stirring the pot yeah yeah don't exactly. do it 
Yeah, books if you do that. Yeah, they might end up writing. Right. Yeah, they might end up becoming a novelist. (laughs) You have to prevent it at all costs. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about this town of Sibiu a little bit. Um, And the reason I want to describe it is because um, I I want our our listeners who aren't familiar with Romania to come away with this from this episode, knowing a lot more about Tehran, obviously, but but also having a little bit more complicated perspective on what Romania is. Um, this is sort of, you can think of Tehran as actually being from three different Romanias. The first is that town Rashinara, a little mountain village where his father's the priest. The second one is this town of Sibiu, which is larger. Um, in, uh, in my, for my notes here, it's, it's one of these 12 towns in the province of Dac, uh, Daxia Fili, which was the last major conquest of the Romans, right? This is the, this is the far edge of the Roman empire. Um, oh, Romania. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, I just got it. Okay, very good. <laughs> mm. um, and because of this, and remember, we talked about how long these places had been occupied. The 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 town, the entire town was encircled by thick fort, like it was like a fort, the entire town, yeah. right? And they'd been like that for centuries. Um, and this is actually for folks who know about Ovid. When Ovid was banished into exile, this is basically the part of the world that they sent him to. It's 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 it, it, in his day, it might as well have been the moon, right? To go out to Sibiu, right? It's so far out there. Um, not quite as much like that when in Tehran's day, but but definitely, definitely, it's almost like are we even in Europe still? Kind of. Um, um, the, this is one thing too to note about. Uh, Romanian culturally and linguistically um, apparently it's it's like how does it describe it's like it's like there there's some kind of combination between Slavic and romantic so Romanian is a romance romance language but the culturally would be we would we would classify them more as a Slavic culture so they really are this sort of like intermingling of 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 cultures that we tend to think of as distinct in the rest of Europe um there's a pedestrian bridge in this city I just looked it up it's called the bridge of lies (laughs) yeah that's sure that sounds this is a mood it's a wrought iron bridge made in 1859 so wow he probably walked across the bridge of lies oh I'm sure he did yeah Mm. Yeah. crazy Mm -hmm. yeah so crazy typical novelist yeah (laughs) yeah so um let me read let's like this little bit um is that what i want 43 yeah so um after 1918 when uh Sibiu, along with the rest of transylvania became part of the romanian kingdom and nevertheless nevertheless retained the patina of old central european civilization even today more than 80 years later 45 of them under communist rule Sibiu, with its charming gothic and baroque architecture though badly in need of repair remains an imperial town and strikes visitors, visitors from bucharest romania's capital as a sophisticated foreign city Though officially still in Romania and Sibiu, one feels quote abroad. Right, so this is it's it, it's very different from the village he came from, and it's very different from Bucharest, which he will also spend time in. Um, now, eventually, he would stay he would stay in Sibiu through high school, um, and was sort of finding his footing by the end of it, more or less. Um, and again, I want to note, like he doesn't know any French yet, and he will eventually become one of the most most sort of celebrated writers in the language of French in French language, but he doesn't know French yet. Um, I just think that's, I I'm always fascinated. He he really doesn't become into any competence of French until he's, he's 
fully an adult. Um, I'm always shades of the process. Conrad, who mm-hmm. we're doing soon. Uh, yeah. That's that's very interesting. It's highly unusual. Gordon, it uh, is. There's another. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, this is about um, Turan in high school. Young Emil was a good student, though not an exceptional one. His grades throughout high school are average. On the remaining Romanian grading scale of one to ten, he obtained ten and only one subject in his last two years in high school. That's Romanian literature and language. His grades in Latin, French, and German range from uh, between six and nine. In his final baccalaureate examination, the future quote greatest French prose writer after Paul Valéry received a six in French. Um, so yeah, had no, uh, yeah, it's just interesting, right? Eventually he becomes, he's going to master this language and he's going to wield it as, as just as well as a native born French person, I would say. He had time on his hands too. Anyway, that's true. That's yeah. Yeah. No, we're definitely, we're definitely going to get into that. Um, so uh, a couple other things. So eventually after a couple of years, his family moves from the village to Sibiu as well. They get a house and now he's living back with his parents. And oddly enough, he's, he's, you know, when he was a boy, his parents spent a lot of time in prison, right? Political prison. You know, they're not like, you know, they're not criminals really. But um, so he's not with them then. Then they ship him off to this boarding school for a couple of years. He's not with them then. And then all of a sudden he's living in their house with them. Right. And it's very, it's very, it's difficult for him to adapt to this because he's a teenager now. And, you know, teenagers already have a hard time living with their parents. And he went from basically being, you know, he's with these roughnecks and all of that, but he, Nobody was really telling him what to do. He was kind of on his own to some degree. Now, all of a sudden, he's back with his parents, particularly his father, who's quite severe. I mean, he's an Orthodox priest. You know, he's got rules. Um, His mental health. um, Actually, there's a little bit I want to read here. Um, The twin city of Sibiu, Romania, in the United States is Columbia, Missouri. Oh, really? Fun fact. Okay, that's fun. Um. Soon after, this is again from Searching from, for Tehran. Um, soon after he moved in with his family, Emil started having periodic convulsive fits that resembled epilepsy in everything but the loss of consciousness. These self-induced epileptic fits occurred with increasing frequency, especially when he was at home alone on Sunday afternoons. Sunday afternoons in sleepy provincial towns are notoriously boring and depressing, but the reaction they triggered in young Emil was extreme. The young boy threw himself to the floor. He kicked and jerked about, moaning and sighing under the, quote, weight of a crushing emptiness. So he's got, he's got some moods. Um, that goes on the bingo card, uh, which <laughs> which one friend of the show made recently. Uh, what What's the name of the fellow who did the bingo card? Oh, that was such oh, a Pee-wee good. Mel- Pee Wee Melville. Right, right, right. Pee Wee Herman mm-hmm. Melville. Yes. Uh, outstanding job with the Art of Darkness bingo card. <laughs> Great work. Meme the show. We respect memes and memers. Uh, Mm -hmm. But and and of course, there's no way you could make a complete Art of Darkness bingo bingo card. We may need it updated every year. Uh, I don't know if childhood illness, severe childhood illness was on the card, but in the future, it certainly belongs there. But there were some there were some real bangers on that card. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Kevin speaks German. Right. <laughs> Nein. Werde nicht Deutsch sprechen. Nein. Something. Something. Yeah, hey, I'm, no, I'm just trying. I'm pandering now. But no, yes, thank right. you. Very, very good. Yeah, that was you a lot a of fun. Great, yeah, you did a great job with that. Um, this is also um, in our John Berryman episode. John Berryman had a similar thing when he was a teenager. He His mother would be like hectoring him and he would just shut down. He would just like he would like pass out even. Um, and it was sort of like, are you doing this to not? 
so you don't have to talk like what nobody really understood what was happening but he would go into these kind of fits and he would he would sort of pass out yeah <laughs> the um, next time we have a show scheduled and i'm underprepared yeah he's just, <laughs> uh, just yeah. <laughs> sorry i'm epileptic <laughs> yeah yeah, right. yeah it's not my fault yeah <laughs> now now there's a this is a good time in his teenage years yeah in his teenage years we start to see some of his uh what i would call his obsessions and afflictions and the big one is insomnia. So he is afflicted by insomnia for years. And it's it's the way that I thought about, about reading some of it. And I'm going to read this passage from Heights of Despair, um, his first book about insomnia. But it was really interesting to me is like he really used this as fuel. It was almost like an alter, like an altered state of consciousness going yeah. completely sleeplessly and it allowed him to kind of tap into something that he maybe wouldn't have been able to tap into otherwise i mean it was torturous at the same time i mean he describes it and it sounds like absolute hell but you know he definitely was it like his version yeah. of mysticism was like to not sleep for long enough till you start things start to you know you start to lose your mind a little bit yeah i think um, sleep deprivation is considered torture mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a time-honored method yeah. of torturing someone is depriving them of sleep preventing oh, yeah. them from being able to sleep induces yeah. all sorts of terrible things like oh yeah hallucinations it's it's not a state you want to be in for very no i i was up once for somewhere between 40 and 50 hours and i heard things yeah you, yeah you would def you definitely had audible audio hallucinations yeah, yeah. not fun uh, <laughs> um, but Charon used it, um, it, it to, you know, pretty good effect. We're going to, I'm going to read this passage from Heights of Despair. This is his first book that he puts out as quite a young man, actually. Um, and this is about insomnia. Have you ever had the brutal and amazing satisfaction of looking at yourself in the mirror after countless sleepless nights? Have you suffered the torment of insomnia when you count the minutes for nights on end, when you feel alone in this world, when your drama seems to be the most important in history and history ceases to have meaning, ceases to exist? When the most terrifying flames grow in you and your existence appears unique and isolated in a world made only for the consummation of your agony? You must have felt those moments as countless and infinite as suffering in order to have a clear picture of the grotesque when you look at yourself in the mirror. It is a picture of total strain, a tense grimace to which is added the demonically seductive pallor of a man who has struggled along horrible, dark precipices. Isn't this grotesque expression of despair similar to a precipice? It is something of the abysmal maelstrom of great depths, the seduction of the all-encompassing infinite to which we bow as we bow to fatality. How good it would be if one could die by throwing oneself in, into an infinite void. So, yeah. So to him, insomnia wasn't just, oh boy, I'm not sleeping. This is, I'm tired. This is yeah, <laughs> yeah. He was, he was using this, this, this altered mental state to, to, I think as we'll see, especially when he's in Berlin later, he's sleepless in Berlin by himself. He barely knows anybody. I think this is where Choran, the artist is born. Um, Right. And today, all of his friends would be like, just take some melatonin, right. bro. Yep. Get the yeah. little the sleepy tea with the bear. Get the extra yeah. workout, yeah. man. Just, yeah. just smoke yeah. the 
<laughs> yeah, just smoke up. You just fall yeah. right asleep. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. go back Fox to sleep. Cartoons and yeah, you <laughs> yeah. Mm. What's imagining, the problem, man? Yeah, <laughs> imagining Toronto with a bowl of cereal, stoned, <laughs> watching cartoons, and falling asleep on the couch. Heights of despair is never written. Yeah. Um. Mm. Um. He did try to cure this though, or even early on. So the starts the insomnia starts in Sibiu around the time where he has to move back in with his parents, and it continues for years before he can really figure it out his initial attempt at curing it was to go on long walks in the middle of the night and to read and write um and i want to just imagine just picture in your head this town we've talked about it's on the far edge of the roman empire it's got it's got like fort like walls and he's out there walking around in it kind of a severe intense looking young man head full of Dostoevsky and Shakespeare and everything else because he's a voracious reader and he's the only other people out on the streets are prostitutes so he's wandering around he will talk, you know he will bump into some prostitutes and talk to them and it's three o'clock in the morning right um and 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 this is you know World War one has just ended the status of Romania as a place is kind of uncertain like you don't really know what the future holds for this place that you're in even um you know he he was born in the kingdom of hungary but he's now in romania there's also a little sense of like well how do i even fit into all of this exactly um kind of a kind of a crazy time period um i'm going to read a little bit from this interview with jason vice from itineraries talking later on in his life reflecting back on insomnia right and the question was do you suffer it still do you still suffer from insomnia Charon says a lot less but that was a precise period, about six or seven years, where my whole perspective on the world changed. I think it's a very important problem. It happens like this. Normally, someone who goes to bed and sleeps all night, the next day he begins a new life almost. It's not simply another day. It's another life. And so he can undertake things. He can express himself. He has a present, a future, and so on. But for someone who doesn't sleep, from the time of going to bed at night to waking up in the morning, it's all continuous. There's no interruption, which means there's no suppression of consciousness. It all turns around that. So instead of starting a new life at eight in the morning, you're like you were at eight the evening before the nightmare continues uninterrupted in a way. And in the morning, start what? Since there's no difference between uh, there's no difference from the night before that new life doesn't exist. The whole day is a trial. It's the continuity of a trial. While everyone rushes towards the future, you are outside. So when that's stretched out for months and years, it causes the sense of things, the conception of life to be forcibly changed. You don't see what future to look forward to because you don't have any future. And I really consider that the most terrible, most unsettling, in short, the principal experience of my life. There's also the fact that you are alone with yourself. In the middle of the night, everyone's asleep. You are the only one who is awake. Right away, I'm not a part of mankind. I live in another world. And it requires an extraordinary will to not succumb. Yeah. Whoa. One thing I would like to point out is how much that sort of solitude and that sleeplessness in his time differs even from what someone today would experience because for as upsetting as it may be right now to experience insomnia, we can still tweet and right. we can grab our phones. We can watch television. We can stream movies, videos. We can reach out to anyone, anywhere mm -hmm. in the world. We can reach out to people in different time zones who are a lot conscious during their normal waking states we can have mm -hmm. conversations but but still annoyed to hear from us <laughs> still, yeah, of course yeah we'll never that never right. changes but, but there's uh, also like 24 hour you can go to a diner you can go to yeah, I mean, if you right. live in an urban area sure. you can go to a grocery store like right. you can yeah 
You can be a night person. It is. There is no way for us now, unless we heroically and voluntarily impose it on ourselves. There's no way for us to experience that kind of solitude of being Mm -hmm. in a Romanian village or town or even larger city in the 20s or 30s and being unable to sleep. Mm -hmm. Cannot reach out to anyone. Maybe, yeah, at at most you're going to be encountering prostitutes or vagrants in the Mm -hmm. streets. But it's something that's very difficult to relate to because it's so far removed from our everyday experience. Even those those more extreme experiences that we may have today of still being unable to sleep. It's just the way that we're plugged in, the way we're connected to people. It's so far away from what. Great point. Yeah. Well, and, and you could say, well, okay, he can just read a lot of books, but like I've, uh, it's been a long time, but I've had, same. it's not, it, the same. it's not, yeah, I, I had insomnia for periods of time and it's been a long time, luckily, since I've really had it, mm-hmm. but like you can't, yeah, that do, was, that was after the incident. Right. We don't talk about the incident. We don't talk uh, about the incident. <laughs> no, but like, <laughs> it's not, it's not a productive time. Like, I mean, I'm a writer, right? So it's like, oh, I got a couple hours I can write. Mm-hmm. Nah, really. It's not that easy. No, no it's not, not really. No, I, I, I relate to that very much. So yeah. and when I've in, experienced bouts of sleeplessness, it's, you need to be able to draw on living energy and you can't mm-hmm. generate it all within yourself and reading someone else who is reading the words of a dead man. It's, it's better than nothing, certainly, mm-hmm. but it's still not the same as being able to converse with another living person in front of you or yeah. on your screen or just even watch a stupid TV show. Yeah, I mean, really. Well, yeah, that, that that obliterates time. If, if time is weighing on you, there's no better way to eliminate that sense or to reduce the heaviness right. of that time as, as watching stupid videos. Right. And yeah. It, pull up, pull up Netflix and just let it roll through yeah, video after right. video. You know. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah, he didn't. He didn't have that. And I, you know. That's 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 his cross to bear. Now, another obsession we're going to talk about that develops in this time is suicide. He's obsessed with the concept of suicide throughout his life. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from uh, Heights of Despair, the first book that he put out about suicide. Why don't I commit suicide? He says, because I'm as sick of death as I am of life. I should be cast into a flaming cauldron. Why am I on this earth? I feel the need to cry out to utter a savage scream that will set the world to tremble with dread. I'm a like I am like a lightning bolt ready to set the world ablaze and swallow it all in the flames of my nothingness. I am the most monstrous being in history, the beast of the apocalypse, full of fire and darkness of aspirations and despair. I am the beast with a contorted grin, contracting down to illusion and dilating toward infinity, both growing uh, and dying, delightfully suspended between hope for nothing and despair of everything, brought up among perfumes and poisons, consumed with love and hatred, killed by lights and shadows. My symbol is the death of light and the flame of death. Sparks die in me only to be reborn as thunder and lightning. Darkness itself glows in me. Now, he doesn't tell you why he doesn't commit suicide there. It's sort of a, a it's a launching point question for him to to go into these this this well, go where he went with it. Um, now for folks who are familiar with sort of the the basic outlines of existentialism and, and some of the other players that are sort of on the board uh, in the 20th century, uh, Camus fa- famous one of Camus famous things propositions is um, you know, it's sort of a fundamental tenet of absurdism is, is he says, you know, I think he opens Myth of Sisyphus with should you kill yourself? And the idea, it, right, is that if you instinctually react to that, no, I shouldn't, 
then your life automatically has some kind of self-contained meaning because you must have a reason that you don't want to kill yourself, right? And it's about finding what that reason is, right? Tehran isn't saying, Tehran doesn't ever says you shouldn't really, he never really says you shouldn't commit suicide, but for him, suicide means something different. To him, the notion that you could commit suicide at any time was actually a relief to him. Yeah. It was like, it was like at any moment, if this gets hairy enough, I can just end it. And Which it was, it's also Nietzschean too, because mm -hmm. that you can trace that back to it. I'm not going to be able to quote it exactly, but a paraphrase of a Nietzschean aphorism, which is something like that suicide, the, the idea of suicide gets you through a bad night. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a, the, the, the fact that it is always possible is consolation. You can always, you can extend your life indefinitely because you know, you never know how bad your life can get, right? right. You can always reach a point of saying, I can't bear this any longer, but the, but you also know at the same time, it could get worse. Mm -hmm. And also I know that if it does get worse, then I can still kill myself. Right. So maybe it's not so bad yet that I have to do it. But if it ever gets that bad, I can. And through that logic, you can extend, you can prolong your days. Right, right. And now you got to be in a pretty intense place to be in that mind frame, uh, you know, to begin with. But it's interesting that his his perspective on and, and I think he's right. I mean, I think <laughs> the three of us, you guys need to team up and go and do a motivational speaking road show. <laughs> hey, you, yeah, you can kill yourself. <laughs> just remember, yeah. if it gets really bad, you can just end it all. Start a business, <laughs> right. ask that girl out. If it doesn't right. work out, you just, can kill yourself. Yeah, yeah, just easy. Just end, your, end it. Yeah. 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 Our speaking fee is merely uh, thirty thousand dollars right. uh, for a keynote, <laughs> and if you uh, if you give uh, me any less than that, I might just end it. So, I might just kill myself. Yeah. You don't know, and then it'll be your fault. You don't want that on your hands. Yeah, this yeah. is now a hostage taking. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So, mm. uh, so because he's writing about things like this, and suicide comes up in a number of his works, as he gets more reputation later on. Um, he's often confronted by people, people either come to him and tell them, tell him that they're thinking about suicide. He becomes the guy, you know, you know what I mean? Like you've written about this. Now you become the guy that other people want to talk about suicide with you all the time. Right. Um, and this is him talking about this later in life in the eighties from that same interview in itineraries of a hummingbird. Um, a few years ago, there was a friend of mine who told me that he'd met an engineer 25 who wanted to meet me. Finally, I said, all right, we'll go stroll around the Luxembourg Gardens nearby. This is in Paris later. Uh, it was a summer evening. We spoke about one thing and another, literature and such. And finally, he said to me, do you know why I wanted to meet you? It's because I read your books and I saw that you're interested in suicide. I'd like to tell you about my case. And so he explained to me he had a good job, earned a lot. He said, in the last two or three years, I've begun to be obsessed, excuse me, obsessed with suicide. I'm in the prime of life. And this idea has taken hold of me. I haven't been able to get rid of it. We talked for three hours about suicide, circling the Luxembourg Gardens. I explained to him how I was. I am still obsessed by it. I consider suicide as the only solution. But I told him my theory is this, that suicide is the only idea that allows man to live. Suicide gives me the idea that I can leave this world when I want to, and that makes life bearable. Instead of destroying it, uh, instead of destroying it. So for three hours, we discussed every aspect of this problem. And then I suggested that we do not see each other again because there wouldn't be any point. So, yeah, 
Uh, <laughs> I like that. Um, I like leaving someone <laughs> with that. That yeah, it's been great, and I think we've exchanged something yep. worthwhile. But also, yep. we should never see each other again. Right. <laughs> it's sometimes it's the right move. Not gonna right? do any good. Yeah. Right. Right. Instead right. of the the usual, like let's we'll catch up later. We'll, right. Right. No, I don't up. need your yeah. I don't need your phone number, your email, or anything. I'm just, yeah. 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 <laughs> Good. Uh, don't meet your heroes. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a couple other concepts that he is obsessed, becomes obsessed with or or affected by in these teenage years in Sibiu. Another is exile. Um, he's He starts to see himself as an exile almost from humanity. We talked earlier about him being sort of an exile from time in this way. Um, and this is something that affects him. He never... He, he basically, he, it starts as like him not feeling like he belongs where he is until eventually he doesn't want to feel like he want he savors that exile status. He wants to be sort of broken off from the rest of the world, whether that's because now suddenly you're not guilty of for modernity. Like if you're broken off from everybody else, then you're no longer complicit like the rest of us are in a certain way. Um, I think it's a little bit of that, but also he has a bit of he has a bit of uh masochism too i mean he likes to he likes to suffer uh, not in a momentary way but he thinks suffering is in is incredibly valuable it's uh, a legitimate yeah. style mm -hmm. that is has a lot of cachet even now it, mm -hmm. it, it could be kind of slick and cool to be seen to be miserable somehow right right, right. Uh, i don't know i don't know what it all yeah. means yeah. but it's certainly a thing yeah, oh, in the nineties, it was huge. Of that a little bit too, myself. And yeah. it's it's you know, it's it's something that you can tap into. But I think he, he would also view humanity in general as being prone to suffering and anguish, and maybe the majority of people block that off. Maybe they numb it through various means, but he's maybe especially sensitive to it. But yeah, there's that, there's that idea that he's separated from the mass of people and maybe is in exile but also there's a there's an idea that in exile you can actually connect to something which is more essential it is closer to the core the heart of the human condition like you have to you have to live on the fringe to know what's right there at the heart and that and he writes frequently of how man is <clears throat> racked with these violent, loathsome, anguished ideas and feelings. And it's, it's maybe something that a lot of people deny or downplay, but he's very much in touch with it. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, I think the one thing you can say about Tehran, uh, there's much to say about him and we're, we're saying it, but one thing I think we can say about his writing is like, he consistently refuses to look away. I think a lot of the stuff he's talking about is stuff that we all kind of have in our subconscious. Honestly, when that suicide thing, when he's talking about it's actually my only reprieve, that made perfect sense to me. I was like, yeah, I know what you mean, man. Like, that's there. You kind of always know it's there. It's very subconscious, but it's always sort of there, right? It's saying the quiet part out loud. Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Exactly. Um, another obsession of his conceptually, thematically, was this notion of failure. I'm going to read a little bit from um, an L.A. review of books. Um, I think they were writing an article. There was an article about Tehran when they a whole new I think it was some reprints in English came out in the 90s. But this is just a little bit of an article. I thought it was a, a good little paragraph that succinctly summarizes this relationship to failure. 
That Charan is an unsystematic thinker doesn't mean that his work lacks unity. On the other, on the contrary, it is kept tightly together not only by his unique writing style and manner of thinking, but also by a distinct set of philosophical themes, motif, motifs, and idiosyncrasies. Among them, failure figures prominently. Charan was obsessed with it. The specter of failure haunts his oeuvre, starting with his earliest Romanian book. Then, throughout his life, he never strayed away from failure. He studied it from varying angles and at different moments, as true connoisseurs tend to, and looked for it in the most unexpected places. Not only can individuals end up as failures, Charan believed, but also societies, peoples, and countries, especially countries. I was fascinated with Spain, he said once, because it offered the example of the most spectacular failure, the greatest country in the world reduced to such a state of decay, which is true. I mean, right in Spain and during the colonial period was a world power, right? A superpower in our modern parlance. And by his time, it's, you know, it's it's a sort of a second or third grade nation. So but didn't um, uh, Sir Francis Bacon summon the the tempest that laid waste to the Spanish Armada using uh, wasn't isn't that some sort of yeah probably <laughs> that's a different episode yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. oh that Francis yeah yeah that yeah, Francis yeah. Bacon mm. yeah yeah so the Span- yeah the, the Spanish Empire rose and fell very rapidly but mm-hmm. this happens with every group every empire every mm-hmm. civilization and I even it, it's a- never going to happen in America though right? no no it's not, no, no. <laughs> And yeah. it's not happening now. Right. Don't, no this way. This isn't what it looks like yeah. when it's happening. But, but I, I somewhat mm. flippantly or comically describe it as when we look over history and we think of the Greeks, You know, at one point we have this idea of the Greeks as having this incredible influence and having a, a world spanning for the time empire. The Greeks are now Greeks. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. There's no V anymore. It's yeah. They're just Greeks. Yeah, it's just an ethnic group. Depends on what many. neighborhood you're in in London, yeah. let's say, yeah. at, at a right. given time. But yeah, fair enough. I, I understand what you're saying. That's quite you. You are right. It's it is it's a feature of empire that it is like it's like a market. Like oh, here we are at the yeah. top, and yes. now, now there was that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. It's fundamentally. Well, it's great. It's great to know that we have the the thousand year strip mall Reich here in the United States. That's yeah, going to be well, tremendous. And, and, yeah. Maybe we will yeah. have will be looked at as at one time the Americans and then mm-hmm. Americans. Americans, yeah, just some Americans over. That's yeah. a really interesting little linguistic trick. What a relief yeah. will that that will be. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. America. So much. Commit, if America commits suicide, it's over, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. just yeah. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll put it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's a couple other mm-hmm. things from Charan's time as a teenager. Sort of things he gets sort of that become part of his personality. Uh, I'm just gonna put them together: misogyny and booze. Okay, so he would describe himself as a misogynist. Um, I don't think it's. Okay, so what happens is at one point he's got his eyes on this woman that he goes to, like, that's about his age, teenager, they're 16 or 17 years old. And she feels, and this is how intense Tron is, he feels like she, she might not have even known he existed, excuse me, but he feels like she slighted him. And so Tron's response is to swear off women forever. It's over, bro. It's so over. <laughs> but unlike, yeah, mom, you're a degenerate. <laughs> Sally, you represent yeah. all women everywhere forever. Right, I'm done. Right. What is bad itis? Yeah, yeah, one itis. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right, right. The other onanism. Right. Mm. <laughs> so, so he, so, and the thing is, he actually. 
unlike what a, a normal sort of angsty 17 year old boy might do, which is maybe say that, but like, you know, it lasts a week or a year or something. He actually does seem to hold to this for several, for a number of years. Um, it's only prostitutes. He doesn't have girlfriends. We'll talk about the woman he ends up spending his la- the the sort of last half of his life with. But um, but yeah, he does actually maintain this for a period of time. Um, and then also, like I said, booze. So he was for decades, and it's not clear where it stopped. He was a very heavy drinker, a very heavy drinker of coffee and a chain smoker, which. That feels like it's not even really it's not even remarkable uh, on the show anymore, but it's there. Yeah, Yeah. those are the three uh, uh, jockeys that ride the three things from before. What were (laughs) they? Oh, yeah. Nihilism, nihilism, pessimism, decay, suffering, decay, decay, and nihilism, suffering, decay, and nihilism (laughs) written by what are the what are the three riders? Uh, Cigarettes. Cigarettes, coffee, coffee alcohol. alcohol. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if only there were four, it'd be the four horsemen. <laughs> uh, prostitutes. Right. Is the well, that, yeah. that's what they're riding toward. Yeah. That's what you're supercharging <laughs> toward. Yeah. Um. One thing, so uh, one thing that's worth noting is he was a little bit too young to get caught up in World War One. I. I mean, he sort of got sort of fortunate i guess in that case i mean he's born in 1911 right so he's he's too he's just he's a child when it's happening um so he kind of dodges that entirely even though it's happening all around him um he graduates high school he's actually second in a class of 96 which seems pretty good to me um and then he's off to the university of bucharest uh where he enrolled in the faculty of letters now um that's a good school university of bucharest probably yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe safety, safety school. I don't know what it. I don't know. I'm sure like it's a good school. Probably the only school to go to at the time. Mm. Um, that's the big uh, city, though. That is. The, it is. Whoa, yeah, that's the big. That's mm, the capital mm, of Romania. It's the biggest city in mm, Romania. Yep. Mm. Um, and interestingly, so um, this this uh, biographer, Yinka uh, Zerifbal Johnston, talks about how um, now he's in Bucharest. Again, we have three different Romanias, right? So we had the little mountain town he grew up in. We had Sibiu, which is like this old Roman fort city that's still kind of hanging on through history, but it's kind of sophisticated. And even Romanians think it's like foreign. And then he's in Bucharest, which is like the big city and big city. Um, uh, it's six hours by train from Sibiu. So it's, you know, that's a bit of a bit of a hike um, in it's on the doorstep of Asia. So it's sort of like, you know, if you go to Turkey, you go to uh, Istanbul, you're like kind of in Europe and Asia at the same time. There's a little bit of that here in Bucharest as well, according to I've never been there. This is according to the biographer, right? Um, Let me read this little bit of when he shows up there, because it's kind of interesting and you can feel how estranged and weird, how estranging and weird it was for him. Um, Compared to Sibiu's Baroque architecture and German orderliness, Bucharest, with its unending street cries, its perennial dust that turned to mud in the spring and the fall, its warped pavements, its roads swelling and breaking, open like tombstones on the day of the last judgment. That was a Charon bit. Uh, its, quote, buildings and ruins lined up in succession in inert or exalted neighborhoods was a barbarian city. So Charon described it as a barbarian city when he first got there. Um and he showed up with what he called a barbarian's fervor. So it was in some ways the right place for him to be at the right time. Um, he was 
Kevin, you remember when we did the Johnny Cash episode and we realized that like Johnny Cash showed up in Memphis, like right as Elvis Presley was making records, right? It's like this weird like, time sink. Yeah. Right. Something similar happens to Tehran and Bucharest. When he shows up, it's right around the same time that Mircea Eliade, the great uh-huh. um, philosopher of religion, even to this day, hugely influential, and the playwright um, Ionesco show up. Oh, okay. The, all right. Three of the three of them are friend are all eventually become friends in the oh. University of Bucharest. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they would, yeah. I mean, they would communicate with each other throughout their lives, basically. That's some world spanning uh, stuff there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we'll eventually you know, cover Ionesco and I'm like sure Eliade as well. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Yeah. It's good. And, and and the thing is too, it's like those three, I mean, they're, they're considered sort of of their generation. They're like the most well-known Romanian intellectuals, whatever, but there's, they're very different. The three, the things the three of them do are very different from each other. I, I think they're, they have some sensibilities in common, but I mean, theater, Tehran is not doing theater of the absurd, right? He's not writing plays. And and Eliade is like practically an anthropologist. And I think they would have very fruitful discussions, but it is, it's not like, oh, it's here come these three playwrights. It's, it's yeah. three guys who represent kind of different points in this, in this thing. Well, thank Christ. <laughs> yeah. That's the only way they could probably coexist. There had to right. be. Yeah, they would have been in two direct competition with each other, yeah, probably. Take right? my word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, I'm reading about this from the Searching for Tron. The era of political stability and economic prosperity ushered in after the creation of Greater Romania by the politically adroit Liberal Party, Romania's main ruling party, was rapidly coming to an end. Between 1922 and 1928, the Liberal Party had successfully guided the newly formed country through complicated legal and administrative reforms and economic right reconstruction, laying the foundation for a democratic Romania. But the death of wise King Ferdinand in 1927 and then the successive deaths of three prominent leaders of the Liberal Party between 1927 and 1933, capped by the assassination of Ian Duca by the fascist Iron Guard in 1933, led to the creation of a power vacuum in which the renegade King Carol II, who had abdicated his rights to the throne in 1936, or sorry, 1926, only to reclaim them in 1930, competed with the Iron Guard for supremacy. Against the background of a European-wide economic crisis, the tense relations between King Carol II and the Iron Guard shaped the political landscape of Romania in the 1930s. Thus, by the early 1930s, Bucharest was a city in turmoil, plagued by strikes and violent student protests, often subject to martial law. Under the circumstances, young Choran's descent into the city's political maelstrom was, if not inevitable, hardly surprising. Right, so it's a very... Uh, you know, it's it's with that Chinese curse about living in interesting times. Bucharest is interesting times uh, to, when he shows up. Um, there's uh, the the character of the nation and the culture is is still trying to figure out figure itself out in a way. And you've got um, the old royal the old royal system is it's sort of in competition with a general a general liberalization. And then the the Iron Guard shows up and they're sort of pushing pushing against things in a way. And it's it's a bit of a cauldron, right? And World War One is still within memory, and World War Two is on the horizon. So it's a uh, it's a very it's a very it's got to had to have been a very intense place to be. Um, so now I said that he became friends with Eliad and Ionescu. That was not the case when he first showed up. When he first showed up, he didn't know anybody. He was still suffering from insomnia. He's staying in some little crappy apartment and he would spend entire days at the King Carroll Foundation library reading. So this is where he reads everything. Um, 
he didn't really care to go to classes very much. <laughs> um, and this would be true throughout because he would he would he would uh, have academic roles um, th- at different points in his life. And he sort of just didn't bother. Um but Wait, he'd have a teaching position and he just wouldn't attend. Or? Well, not a teaching position like he had a, um, at one point when he's in Paris. At first, he has a grant from the uh, French Foundation, I think. Um, and he just doesn't show up. Oh, he's but he, there, takes, the, he, he just, takes the money. He takes the money. He just doesn't show up. He's going to write a he's going to write a thesis on uh, who is he going to write a thesis? Powerful on? Bergson, I think. And he just mm. doesn't do it. Yeah. Oh, he just um, takes the money. Okay. Very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So now he's now the one exception. I'm a nihilist, but yeah. I'll take that grant. Right. 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 Well, he, yeah, but see, the nihilistic thing to do. Right? It really it, is. Like, I don't, right. I don't care. Yeah. All right. Sure. Sure. I'll write your thesis on Bergson. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, what are you going to do? Take the, yeah. yeah. What are you going to do? Take the money back? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'll just ride this thing out so they stop sending me money. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So he, uh, so yeah, no friends, insomnia, reading all day in the library, right? He's enrolled in the philosophy department at the at the university. And the one exception to this total disengagement with academia, despite the fact that he's sort of putting himself through his own syllabus, right, is this professor named Nai Ionescu. And Nai Ionescu is famous in Romania. He has an in-depth Wikipedia page. And he, which you can, the, the way to think of him is like, all right, you've got this generation of angry young men of which Choran is one of them. Ionescu is the older generation and he's, he's this sort of charismatic um, magnet for a bunch of these guys. I mean, Eliad, Ionescu and Choran probably met in his class, you know, um, and he was, he was, and the reason that Charan loved him is because one day Ionescu walked in and said, what should I lecture on sort of as a joke? And Choran said, boredom, lecture on boredom. Yeah. And so Ionescu goes ahead and he lectures for an hour, hour and a half on like the mythological implications of boredom and what it's meant through history and like all of this stuff. And to Tehran, it's like, that's perfect, right? It's not systematic. It's, 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 you know, you're wandering from topic to topic. That's much more in um, Tehran's sort of perspective. It makes sense. This is the one thing I said early on, we were reading the very Wikipedia description of who Tehran was. He's a philosopher. He would have hated being called a philosopher. He didn't think of himself as a philosopher. He didn't like any of the systems. He thought all he thought as soon as you put something into a, a intellectual system, it was immediately it was no longer worth anything. Yeah, um, it's honest. It, you are not you're not consistent with your own inconsistencies because Mm -hmm. existentially you thrash from one position to another. You contradict yourself through your moods, through the functioning of your organs. It's an embodied Mm -hmm. contradictory state. And to be consistent within a system of of thought is to be untrue or disloyal to your, your lived position. Yeah. And this is something I, I vibed with him on was, was sort of like, you know, you can read all the philosophy you want. That's fine. He he thought when he was a young man, he thought of philosophy as a kind of a religion. Um, you know, he's he's uh, he wasn't an atheist. Um, he kind of thought it was ridiculous to say you didn't believe in God, but he certainly wasn't an Orthodox Christian anymore. And uh, philosophy had kind of taken that role in his life. And eventually he he kind of grew. He kind of grew through it almost. It seems like at some point he's like, yeah, there's no none of these systems actually make sense to call yourself. So say you believe in something ism doesn't make any sense. You don't actually believe in that thing. 
Yeah. Right. And, and to believe in a system is to overlook, to deny, to suppress certain sensations, ideas, longings. Mm -hmm. But even that slight maybe digression in a way, but it, that idea of philosophy as systematic is also somewhat of a canard or misnomer. Because, and I think it's much more a product or an inheritance of German idealism, Hegelian mm -hmm. philosophy. Like mm -hmm. We think of philosophy as systematic because of that Hegelian legacy where this figure Hegel comes along at the beginning of the 19th century and says, I've finished philosophy. I have a complete right. system. I've explained everything. And that's right. a, somewhat the cereal box version of it too. It's more mm -hmm. complicated than that, but that's what everyone's reacting to in the 19th and then early 20th century. But if you go back even to someone like Socrates, it's much more complicated because mm -hmm. You can't really say that Socrates is a systematic thinker. I mean, he, he's engaging in dialectic. He's having conversations with people. He's poking holes in what's considered to be the systematic mode of thought of his time. So mm -hmm. a little more complicated than that. But yeah, for the purposes of what we're talking about here, yes, like philosophy as system, something that Ch Charon was rejecting or reacting mm -hmm. against. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, he finds himself, he finds himself opposed to it. And throughout his life, I think more so as time goes on. Well, and the literary mode is the natural maneuver mm -hmm. yeah, from, right. from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, that's why we see him, we see him falling into lyricism and into Afri the aphoristic style. I mean, he 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 adopts um you know, all of his stuff is kind of short, or it's at least broken up into short pieces. A lot of the books themselves are quite short, um, but some of the books are at, are just collections of aphorisms. Um, and his whole point in that was like, I don't want to, I don't really care about explaining anything. Yeah. Like, if I talk about the flaming sword <laughs> in my heart, like right. what, I'm supposed to like explain to you where right. it yeah. comes from, like it doesn't make any sense. Drops yeah. aphorism. Right. Explains nothing. Leaves. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Chad. Jim Mike drop. Yeah. Chad. Mike drop. Chad. So okay. So now this period in Bucharest is really interesting. And in in the way that I almost think about it is like we're not as familiar with Romanian cultural history, but like we've had this in America too at different times. Like we talked a bit about the beatniks in our last episode, right? That was like a thing where there were some people and there was some excitement. Turan's kind of part of not, and I'm not liking it in style to the beatniks, but in terms of that, like kind of self-mythologizing moment in history that these guys happen to catch, Turan finds himself in that through this, in the course of this Nai, Nai Ionescu professor. Um, funnily enough, Nai Ionescu kind of gets these guys um, into the, uh, associated with the Iron Guard, and we're going to talk more about the Iron Guard, but Later on in life, Charon said, I don't think Ionescu actually believed in anything. I think he just was an adventurer. And so it was like, this is where the excitement is, is in this Iron Guard thing, right? So just a very kind of interesting moment. We're going to talk more about the Iron Guard because it's fascinating. But I want to give you a picture of Charon at this time. He appears as a character in a novel written by Mihai Shabashtian in 1934, talking about, and Mercy Eliade shows up in this book, etc. Um let me just read this because it's 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 a novelization of Tehran. Tehran's clearly this character because um, he's an intense guy. <laughs> um, where did it go? Okay, let's see. Let's see. Okay, so this is this is Tehran. This is a uh, in a novel called After Two Thousand Years. This character is Tehran. 
Yes, it's trivial. Yes, it's in bad taste. So what? Do we need to be delicate, spiritual, skeptical? The civilization of good manners makes me heart sick. To avoid being hurt because it's not something that's done, to not scream because of what they'll say, to not live because it's not cute. Forget all these stupidities. We had 10 generations of skeptics who spent their time looking in the mirror under the pretext of being critics. To hell with all this elegance and live. That's what I want. Let us live tormentedly, without good taste, without choices, without chichis. I don't know what that is, without chichis. Let us live with personal crises. Chichis, without chichis, without, okay. you know, little, yeah, affectations, I would okay. say, right? Yeah, okay. Right. Um, Parlea, that's, um, that's the Choran character in this novel. Parlea glared at me with a violence that he contained with difficulty. He wiped his glasses nervously to see me better, and his eyes flashed lightning until I was almost overwhelmed. He had a handsome mane. Proud, tall, provocative, illuminated by the light in his eyes, to which his myopia gave an additional intensity. Here was an enmity to which I cling like a friendship. I don't explain it, I don't understand it, but I felt it in him from the first day, an irreducible opposition. Or, at a time when all sympathies are so easy, it's not a small thing to find a serious antipathy on which we can count all the time, a severe antipathy from a sane man. He is actually the only one for whom these vague words, crisis, anxiety, authenticity, have a real sense. Um, his essay published in uh, Gandiria said, quote, invocation for an invasion of the barbarians as soon as possible. And that was similar to the title of an essay that Turan wrote. Um, invocation for an invasion of the barbarians as soon as possible <laughs> showed for the first time the possibility of a spiritual position which allowed one to say in a somewhat justifiable manner, we others, the young postmodern generation. Um, okay. For me, um, Parlea's thought, Parlea again is Turan, uh, thought is too lyrical. And as regards him, he must find me too skeptical. I would only like to make him understand that we can't be despairing and hold conferences on despair, be anguished and have conversations about anguish. I'd like to tell him that if these feelings are true, then they constitute a drama and the dramas are lived. They aren't discussed. There is in Parlea's nature, some kind of rhetorical demon that pushes him to declaim that of which I am totally incapable. I, who have accounts only to settle with myself, to talk about anxiety until two in the morning at the Costa Ritas and then go to bed. There is truly the essence of comedy. Too bad that Parlea has no humor. So that's how he was sort of immortalized in this novel that came out in 1934. And someone else wrote about him. He's a, yes, yes. I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Put them as a character uh, in this novel. Yeah. You know what this all reminds me of is Bolaño. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very uh, Bolaño like scene. Mm -hmm. they're not all poets but it's a similar kind of thing right it's an angry young generation they feel like they haven't gotten their sort of you know they feel like things haven't gone their way they feel like they're in the margins of history somehow um and they're angry and they're smart right um now here's where the iron guard comes in okay subtweeting um, our listeners here <laughs> <laughs> so so there's this <clears throat> thing called the iron guard the iron guard are um and and Charan's association with them is is sort of unofficial. He is he kind of favors them. He's sort of more on their side at this time, but he's not uh, he's not like going to the meet Iron Garden meetings necessarily. Right. Um, it's kind of one of these things like you got to pick your side to some degree. And he ends up on the Iron Guard side. Um, I think that's very typical, though, too, for <laughs> these literary or intellectual figures to flirt with these movements to have some involvement with them, but not to be fully fledged card carrying members at the same time. To yeah. I mean, direction to have sympathies 
maybe even to flesh out some of those sympathies in their works, but they're not, they're, they're not fully involved members. Right. Right. And I think we see that as Toronto, somebody who's against systems, who's, who's sort of a nihilist, uh, not sort of is a nihilist in a capital N sense. He's not going to fully sign up to anything yeah. ever. Yeah really even if he agrees you know 75 percent of the way but okay who what was the iron guard i think this is an interesting historical note and we got to know what they are to really understand Tehran and where his what his milieu is oh, they they wrote the first metal song iron butterfly iron butterfly is a cover band uh, of iron guard okay, um, okay. This is, uh, you know i'm way out of whack what year are we in right now um Time. this would be like uh 1930s Oh, I'm way ahead of, okay, yeah, never yeah, mind. Yeah. Iron Guard, Iron Guard. Yeah. So um, <laughs> they were also known as the Legion of the Archangel Michael. Uh, it's a militant revolutionary group formed in 1927 by this guy, Cornelia Zela Kodrenu. Uh, um, he formed it when he was just 28 years old. Okay, this is metal, though. Yeah, this is pretty is. metal. Okay, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, now, here yeah, are the characteristics yeah. of the Iron Guard. They were anti-democratic, anti-capitalist, anti-communist, and anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> they were doing all right. They were doing all right for a while. I, I was rolling with it. But, oh, okay. All right. That last one. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. yeah. Now we got the four riders of the, the apocalypse here right. now. Okay. Right. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What are we what are we talking about on the uh, the after dark Brad? Well, we're gonna talk about yeah, we're gonna talk we're we're gonna talk about um Tehran's praise of Hitler. Now, with an asterisk, because he changed his mind later. But we're gonna we're gonna get into it. Why did why very did interesting? Hey, look, the the, uh, the Austrian corporal was on the cover of Time magazine in the thirties. Well, so. this is a lot of people were doing it at the time. Yeah, I mean, this yeah, is yeah. this is the thing. It's, too, so. right? Mm. It's, yeah, we so we did our episode on H.P. Lovecraft. Henry Ford. Yeah, yeah, Henry Ford. In 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 um, it's really easy in hindsight when everything you know about World War II comes from the History Channel to be yeah. like, ah, the sides are obvious. What's yeah. who's doing what here? Alien but, pyramids, right? In, yeah, but Frankfurt, to, yeah. right? But to be in 1935 <laughs> and you don't have the internet, it's yeah. a little harder to understand well, where you also, stand. Yeah, choosing between fascist Germany and Soviet Russia really was it so clear cut? Right, right, who, exactly. Good guys were. Yeah, exactly. There I just got fired, by the way. So uh, <laughs> just now, yeah, <laughs> it happens. Uh, I don't have a place to live anymore. So oh, like, yeah, my, my debit card doesn't. Why is <laughs> I just noticed. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, here's one thing with the Iron Guard. So, so Iron Guard is one of many sort of fascist or at least far right groups that are bubbling up in Europe between the wars. Right. It's not the only entity like this obviously um one thing that separates the iron guard from these others is um it was heavily steeped in romanian orthodox christianity right so they viewed themselves as sort of like the militant arm of the church almost um and they also were fascinated with the mysticism attendant on that tradition right so so a lot of the other far-right organizations in europe to my understanding were sort of maybe nominally religious or at least played that card, you know, but, but not necessarily, it didn't actually find its way into the individual positions and policies and strategies. Whereas with the iron guard, Cordena was a true believer in Romanian orthodoxy. Um, so now there's a couple of reasons that this come out. And I think this is very actually interesting when you, you, if you're paying attention to what's happening in America now, you might see some echoes here. 
So one thing that the Iron Guard probably came out of is something that we've come to now call elite overproduction, right? You've got a bunch of people who are overeducated and there's not really any future lined up for them. Is right? that Turchin, Turkin, Peter? Oh, I don't know. Who, yeah. invent, who coined that term? Probably. Yeah, the probably theory, I certainly did. Elite overproduction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, to... it's, and it's an issue, right? Because you take all these people, you yeah, give them a really good education. I just looked it up. Yeah. Go on, Brett. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, you yeah. give them a really good education and then, then there's no jobs. It's like, yeah, yeah you have a, you have a master's degree in literature go, and yeah. you should go like make some coffee for us. Go, go trade doggy coins yeah. online. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Caleb. You were yeah. saying. Oh, yeah. The, that's what we're dealing with now, right? You have all these people with uh, master's degrees, PhDs, but even bachelor's degrees. And mm-hmm. they're, they they think that they should be able to teach courses, uh, lecture people. But now that really all that's left for them to do is to make coffee and yeah, to sort boxes at Amazon. Sure. That's what I do. And that's, uh, that's my literary career is based on that so right right yeah no and it's 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 a yeah this is what was interesting when i read this it was like the iron guard came out of basically drawing from all of these students these disillusioned students i was like oh okay yeah Yeah. Yeah, we have plenty of those yeah right i hope you're out there taking notes yeah right right this cannot go on indefinitely yeah i'll see you at the podcast down by the docks later That's right. So now the other thing that's going on too, we're thinking about global, the global historical situation, the Great Depression, um, the Great Depression kind of comes up as the Iron Guard is forming, right? So that's affecting things too. Um, Now there's also the, they're up against a monarchy, a very kind of confused monarchy in a sense, because they're trying to be more parliamentary, uh, sorry, parliamentary, but, but not, don't kind of have the history for it. And they're poised between like we said, they're poised between Russia and and Germany. They kind of don't know where they fit. Romania at times has been a vassal state for the French. Um, and in fact, King Carol II, who is also the same guy as King Carol I. There's not going to be a quiz on this later, but it's complicated. Um, <laughs> he, gave, he gave up the throne and then he came back. And so he had to take a different name. So he became King Carol II. The king formerly known as Carol. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Not it's a very uh, yeah. creative guy. No, no, no. <laughs> I call myself was, now. Yeah. Carol he, II. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was the first king in like a couple of generations that even spoke Romanian. Right. So again, you've got this identity and the Iron Guard is like, no, they're a, na- a Romanian nationalist enterprise. Right. And so I made me think about this idea that like, I don't know who said it. Somebody smarter than me said something along the lines of like every act of violence is an attempt at identification. Right. So there is this element of like we're Romanians and like history has not allowed us to exist as that up until now. But we are and we're going to try and make that happen. We're going to try and be have a Romanian identity. We're not French. We're not German. We're not anything. We're Romanians. Um, and so the, the movement, the Iron Guard picked picked up steam. I mean, it became it became a lot of people in Tehran's generation were either members or affiliated or whatever. Eliad yeah. was a member. He was. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, now this led to, and we're not going to go into all of the history of this because it's it's difficult for me to parse through all of the steps of it. But um, 
you know, at some point, Cadreno, the guy who run who started the Iron Guard, eventually he's assassinated by King Carol II. King Carol, um, in this turmoil of all this stuff, not just from the Iron Guard, but just in general, he dissolves the government and institutes a temporary royal dictatorship in 1938. Um, and then in the unrest afterward, um, it's in the unrest after that that Cordreno is murdered by the King, probably by King Carol and his goons. Um, now, as the threat of Russia, because they were more scared of Russia in Romania than they were of the Nazis, right? Um, they would start to, because they're so scared of Russia, the, the leftover Iron Guard people would start making moves, like trying to suggest to the Nazi growing Nazi power, power in Germany that, Hey, we will be, we would be allies with you guys if it comes to that. Right. So there's some kind of flirtation with, you know, world war two hasn't kicked off yet, but there's some flirtation of like, this looks like they're going to be part of the Nazi could be part of the Nazi sort of push. Right. Um, the royal dictatorship ends. They bring in this guy, uh, Kalinescu, becomes the prime minister. He doesn't he doesn't favor Nazi Germany, so we've got this complication going on as well. Um, and then as war actually kicked off, King Carol II, who's still the king, though he's not the prime minister, he brings in this guy, uh, Ian Antonescu, brings in him to be prime minister, who had a secret plan to oust the royalty and install an ultra-nationalist dictatorship. Um, under this guy's reign, this is when pogroms in Romania started uh, basically trying to get rid of the Jews. Um, it wasn't on the scale of of, you know, what the Nazis would do at this point. But, you know, they they rounded up a bunch of Jews in a Bucharest slaughterhouse and killed them. Um, and it was it was getting it was getting pretty dark. Right. So. Tehran is in Romania for at least parts of this. Um He's in Bucharest, which is the center of the center of the action. Um, now we got to back up a little bit because uh, I want to talk more about his first book. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna come back. We get back to the biography, obviously. And we're gonna show how he gets to Berlin. He's in Berlin in 1937, which is an interesting play, time to be in Berlin. Uh, um, but in 1933, he puts out this book called "On the Heights of the, On the Heights of Despair." Um, this book would actually, you know, 1933, he's in his early 20s. This book would actually get him some attention. He would win an award from the King Carroll Foundation, even though he hated King Carroll. Um, and it would actually bring him some degree of fame. He was sort of the hot young intellectual for a, a brief period of time. Um, we're going to talk a little bit. Um, and I want to, um, okay, I'm going to read one passage and then I'm going to have I'm going to have Kevin pick out a passage to read from it also. So this is from On the Heights of Despair, and this is from a chapter called On Individual and Cosmic Loneliness from Tehran. I leave it in writing for those who will come after me that I do not believe in anything and that forgetfulness is the only salvation. I would like to forget everything, to forget myself and to forget the world. True confessions are written with tears only, but my tears would drown the world as my inner fear would reduce it to ashes. I don't need any support, encouragement, or consolation because although I am the lowest of men, I feel nonetheless so strong, so savage, for I am the only man who lives without hope, the apex of heroism and paradox, the ultimate madness. I should channel my chaotic and unbridled passion into forgetfulness, escaping spirit and consciousness. I too have a hope, a hope for absolute forgetfulness, but is it hope or despair? Is it not the negation of all future hopes? I want to know, not to know even that I do not know. Why so many problems? Oh, sorry. I want not to know, not to know even that I do not know. 
Why so many problems, arguments, vexations? Why the consciousness of death? How much longer all this thinking and philosophizing? So that's him in 1933. Kevin, I'm going to read you the chapter, the, the individual in the Heights of Despair. Every chapter or essay has a, a, a title. And when I get to one that you want to hear, you tell me and we'll read that one because they're all pretty short. Okay. okay, ready. Here we go. All right. All right. So first one's on being lyrical. How no. distant everything is. On not wanting to live. Go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do that one. One, one of us. One of us. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> I know. Of course. I, I, I'm, I'm joking. Just, I'm yeah. We have everything to live for. That's we have right. the pod. We have each other. We've got great guests like Caleb. Go. I'm, I'm, I'm excited, Brad. Let's let's yeah. do it. Okay. I'm not wanting to live. Yeah, this one's fairly short. <clears throat> there are experiences... Over here. There are experiences which one cannot survive, after which one feels that there is no meaning left in anything. Once you have reached the limits of life, having lived to the extremity, all that is offered at those dangerous borders, the everyday gesture and the usual aspiration lose their seductive charm. If you go on living, you do so only through your capacity for objectification, your ability to free yourself in writing from the infinite strain. Creativity is a temporary salvation from the claws of death. So that's sort of why he was writing, right? It's basically like he's trying to like outrun the abyss or something. Sure. Yeah, I think there's something in it, there's a contrast between on the heights of despair and his later works. Of course, mm-hmm. the, the the main themes they they're consistent all throughout his life, and he would even say in a later interview that he learned nothing or that he realized what he knew at twenty, he knew at sixty. Right. That really you you never. You, the whole progress of your life amounts to nothing because what you learn early on, you, you never outgrow really. Yeah. But I think at least stylistically, there is a difference between his early works and his later works. And one of the, one of the, the key words for me, I think there's a, almost a sense of impatience. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a patience that grows in his later works. There is a maturity. There's a difference between the immaturity of a work like on the heights of despair and then some of his later works too. And there, yeah. there's something that it, it is more, I, I wish I had a better term for this, but uh, On the Heights of Despair, it sounds more emo than even it though does. it's angsty, it's still, full of angst. Even though yeah. he's still talking later on about suicide, death, meaninglessness, absurdity, and how people never grow and evolve. But there's something about the style of expression in the early works that is, you have to admit, is much more immature, is impatient, mm-hmm. unbridled. He he does temper himself later on, at least stylistically or in a literary sense. Yeah. Well, and I think you can see that. I mean, he was so young. I mean, he's 21, yeah. 22 years old. If you think about when yourself when you're 21 or 22, it's full. Yeah, it's full of rage. And, yes. and, and yeah, and it, it works. <laughs> it, does, it works for the yeah. time of his life. But you can see how I mean, he might have said that, well, I still everything I knew at 20, I knew at 60. Mm-hmm. That may be true in a certain sense. But he did learn how to evolve or mature, at least in a literary sense or stylistically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, very interesting. All right, so back to the biography. Now, I said a minute ago that he showed up in Berlin in 1937. He actually showed up in 1935. So On the Heights of Despair comes out in 1933. He wins some awards. He's now a thing, right? He's made friends with Mercy Eliade, and he's 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 part of that whole scene. I mean, he's had a novel come out about that he's a character in, right? Um, now, he shows up in Berlin 1935. Again, it's one of these sort of timing things. I mean, he shows up 
um, in the spring of 1935. And by the fall, Hitler has consolidated parliamentary powers into a full-blown dictatorship. So he's literally in Berlin when it happens. I mean, it's been coming, but that that it's that that click over into like, okay, now Hitler is running the show here. Um, uh, so it's, it's interesting. Berlin in this period has come up on the show like three or four times already. <laughs> it's a very fascinating period of history, right? It's like Tangier. Uh, yeah, it comes up an awful lot as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of something was well, some obviously something was happening. It's not a profound insight, um, but <laughs> um, okay. But here is where uh, in this time in Berlin, he's there as part of the. Oh, do I not have it? He's there as part of. No, that's when he goes into France. He's there on some kind of grant uh, at first, anyway, anyway, from a Romanian educational institute. Um, you know, again, he'd written that book that was uh, at least well-received. I don't know that it sold a lot of copies. I don't know that he ever really sold a lot of copies. Um, but, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a well-known Romanian intellectual. He's sent off, to, sent off to Berlin. He starts to add some new thinkers to his repertoire beyond Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and Pascal and Thomas Mann. He's getting into some for us somewhat more obscure figures like this guy george simmel who founded um so was the founder of sociology and another guy named uh ludwig klages kevin k-l-a-g-e-s clags klages klages something like that klages yeah yeah okay anyway um ludwig let me read this let me read this bit so we're gonna call him klages uh this is about Clages, and we start to see the influence on Choran from him. Clages, as the enemy of, quote, spirit, was anti-Christian like Nietzsche, but also anti-Nietzsche and anti-Jewish as well. He may have helped wean Choran away from Nietzsche's strong but ultimately misleading influence on him. Um, his emphasis on psychology, he claimed that both Freud and Jung had been credited with insights that he had first complemented the sociological influence of Simmel on, on um, Choran. And his emphasis on a philosophy of life inherited from the early 19th century romantic philosophers of nature provided another avenue for unfortunate inroads of the kind of vitalism that Hitler and European fascism generally made into Tehran's thinking during these years. Klages was, however, no apologist for Hitlerism. He and his circle of followers were tolerated at first, but their organization and journal were shut down in 1936. And in 1938, he was publicly attacked by Dr. Alfred Rosenberg. Yet he was left remarkably free to write and travel during these years. And in 1940, he published a book which may explain why, though it would be hard to imagine a more outre idea for the times he claimed that, uh, for the times he claimed that Nazism and, quote, world Jewry were similar in their world-dominating ends, but that the Jews has, had succeeded where Nazism failed. So, hmm. hot, like, we're probably not even supposed to say that. I'd rather just read that out of a book than say it. Uh, um, kind of intense stuff, right? Totalitarianism is totalitarianism. And That's there true, are different yeah. different groups, different variations. You can have your opinion about it. But uh, yeah. that, that instinct is part. It is the political uh, corollary to the dark business that Caleb so uh, eloquently described earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All of that rapaciousness and the darkness and all of the rest, politically, one of the ways that that people try to sort of sublimate it, and when bad people get into power, they want total, absolute dominance and control. Right. And that is that's something we will wrestle with as long as as humans exist. It's, yeah, it's a human. It's it's part of it's an aspect of human nature, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so now 
Tehran is getting somewhat in this time in Berlin, he's getting somewhat intoxicated with what he refers to or is referred to as Hitlerism, right? Um, Let me just read this bit. And we're going to talk more about this in the after dark, but we got to hit it here. We can't, if we don't talk about this, then we're not telling the Tehran story. So um, this is again from searching for Tehran. Democracy was considered the system of old boys and sweet deals, whereas Hitlerism, a name originally more current than Nazism, seemed to give promise of a new kind of political life, irrational to an extent, but with a vitalism that could catch up and hopefully resolve many intractable social conflicts. But who knows, Tehran remarked prophetically in his first winter in Berlin, if the vitality of this people will not cost us dearly. From the beginning, he was both enchanted and horrified by the amazing, terrifying new era he saw unfolding literally at his feet. Quote, one falls into Hitlerisms, he said, as one falls into any mass movement with a dictatorial tendency. He marveled at the metamorphosis of an entire people into a fantastic forest. Much later, he claimed he studied to, he started to study Buddhism so as not to let him, myself be intoxicated or contaminated by Hitlerism. So he was conscious of the seductive power of it, but also sort of leery of it at the same time, I think. It, it's the period of the German cat where every magazine now uh, mm-hmm. very famously wasn't enough just to be a magazine about cats. It was the yeah. German cat. What does <laughs> right. the German cat mean to the German household <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all the rest of it? Yeah. Right, right. I'm, just, I'm so glad we have nothing like that going on now today <laughs> in America. Well, in fact, uh, fascism or Nazism is always seductive or appealing to those intellectuals who are concerned with or obsessed with this idea of decadence, democracy as a vehicle of decadence or as a product of a declining civilization where people sit around and talk and they debate and they discuss ideas, but then they are, those ideas or those discussions themselves are byproducts of declining vitality and fascism arises as this antidote or countermeasure to declining vitality it's 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 a vitalism it's mm-hmm. a, a, an emphasis on beauty and strength and action and unreflective movement and mm-hmm. striding forward and strength all of these things that it, it's, it's interesting how these intellectual figures can be so enamored of these ideas because these are people who themselves oftentimes are physically weak or somewhat decadently inclined or instinctively botched in some ways, but there's cope. They have this romance. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a coping mechanism. It's an idea that, <laughs> well, I'm weak, but I have all these ideas about these strong, the strong race of people who will sweep all of these declining decadent ideas away and mm-hmm. these practices. And yeah, it's, you see it repeat itself and it was definitely prevalent. In his What's time. so interesting as well is that uh, there's a, at that initial like list of things about these movements that you described, you could almost point to the hippies and say, sort of yeah. similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Sclerotic- yeah. There's a direction that's similar. A reaction to, yeah, to institutions, to bureaucratic organizations, like the stifling nature of the, the organizational 
systems. It really just in the end boils down to the music, doesn't it? Are you listening to uh, Grateful Dead or are you listening to Wagner? Right, right. <laughs> it's style, the differences of style. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Now, I, it's important, again, for us to note is that later on in, in Tron's life, he would basically say all the stuff he wrote as a kid about this was was silly. He, he refers to it as my stupidities. Um, but uh, at the same time, he allows for a republication of this book we're going to talk about in a second called Transfiguration of Romania, which has some clearly fascist tendencies in it. So his relationship to this stuff is tricky. I mean, towards in that itineraries of the hummingbird interview, he, and this is late in his life. And I think he's in his seventies. He basically says like, yeah, I think probably the right political system is something that's like slightly on the left. Like it's very, it's very like milk toast politics yeah. at the end. It's just like, also, ah. you, you can see in his writings, how regardless of how he feels, like the intensity of his feelings, he actually is at home in a system that allows him to say whatever he wants. Yeah. Which actually is liberal bourgeois yeah. democracy, really. Yeah. And he doesn't want to work either. Like no, he doesn't yeah. want to have a productive a productive job. So yeah, right. it's like yeah, it's an, it's a, he he puts himself in an interesting place. Um so yeah, let's I'm talk about, liking this guy more and more. He's all right. He's all right. He's figuring yeah. it out. That's complicated. Yeah. Difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um and, you know, it's hard to tell too, some some of this appeal of, you know, Hitlerism or whatever. I can see how, you know, how when young men now you get into like, uh, like punk or something that's really aggressive and contrary, right? Like musically or stylistically or whatever. I can almost see it being some appeal to that. It's like this contrarian thing that's yeah. against what's happening now. So I'm part of it, kind of. And it's like, the aggression. Yeah, but, it's the masculine testosterone fueled aggression too. Yeah, it, it's, it's lacking uh, channels, maybe. And now it's it's being directed up against the shadow of the Soviet Union and well, that's the millions it. and millions and millions of people who had by the time that war kicked off already been killed and and people were to a degree aware of soviet brutality and savagery so i think that's the story that's always occluded by the mainstream narrative of this business but they had to have an answer to it well, you yes. you had no other option you had to answer the question of communism and the soviet union and mm -hmm. so this is what people came up with Right, right. So Jaron's next book, as we said, is called The Transfiguration of Romania. This book is uh, like Heights of Despair is written in Romanian. He isn't writing in French yet. And I'm going to just read a little description of it. Um, we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. But on this is again from Searching for Sharon. Uh the main plot of Romania's uh, of transfer, transfiguration of Romania is the young Charon's quest for a suitable selfhood or rather for a reformed nation that would suit his sense of himself. In it, his incommensurate pride battles with his self-contempt, obsessive inferiority complex, and self-consciousness about his Romanian origins. And he fills frantic pages with wild megalomaniacal dreams about a delirious Romania with, quote, China's population and France's destiny. At the heart of the book lies Turan's uh, cry of despair and wounded pride, quote, I want another nation, exclamation point. The correlation between self-hatred and overblown pride characteristic of this youthful text was later recaptured by Tron in one of his briefest aphorisms when he said, he who hates himself is not humble. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so this book comes out in 1936. Um, 
it's a moment where sort of Romanian historians note that there is kind of a shift in his generation from being angry young intellectuals uh, to uh, a period of sort of hard political lines being drawn, right? Like you're on this side, I'm on this side, you believe this, becoming the, 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 the productive kind of chaos of him hanging out at the University of Bucharest has settled into some harsh realities. Um, and he's thinking about, well, what should Romania look like? Now, I'm going to give you a couple quotes from Transfiguration of Romania, just so you get a sense of what this book was like. This is just, this is it from Searching for Sharon, but it's just straight up excerpts from Transfer, Transfer, uh, Transfiguration of Romania. <clears throat> Quote, man cannot create except to the extent that he believes himself to be the center of history. I'm not speaking here of the blindness of the bourgeois who live as if they were the only reality, but rather of the greatness of the spirit, which enlarges every movement, every moment uh, to the size of eternity. If you don't have the feeling that everything that preceded you was made expressly for you and that you are a unique at a and that you are a unique crossroads in history, if you don't feel that life wants you and that your moment in history is absolute, unique, and irreplaceable, then you are nothing more than a firefly in the sunlight. Here's another one. Passion for Romania cannot accept its combination, uh, condemnation to eternal mediocrity. Criminal lucidity sees it as a disappearing microcosm, while passion places it at the center of the heart and therefore in the rhythms of the world. Excuse me. The pride of a man born in a small culture will always be wounded. It's not easy being born in a second-rate country. Lucidity becomes tragedy, and if messianic fury doesn't suffocate you, your soul will drown in a sea of disconsolation. So, big big stuff high energy but like you see him there's an anger about romania about his place and this is i mean this is a this is a streak of existentialism too right it's like you're i've been thrown into this life and it don't it's not you know it doesn't say fairness but it's it's like why am i in this position <laughs> there's a little bit of that coming through and trying to find like if your history doesn't mean anything then you don't mean anything Warren during the great war or right before the right great before war yeah, yeah right, right before the great war only to come of age world yeah. war ii what right. a time and to be from yeah. central yeah europe so yeah. eastern europe not right. central europe, eastern right. europe i mean that's it's just wild you really mm -hmm. have to yeah there's it's it's almost impossible to imagine now similar no, to the insomnia late at night yeah, yeah uh, it's hard for it's hard yeah it's hard for us to put our play because uh, he's always sort of like a uh i don't know how to articulate this exactly he's he's sort of almost like a pre-modern figure in a way like in that like you don't get the sense that the 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 literary experimentation and things that were going on say in english-speaking countries uh right after world war one it's sort of like those didn't hit him yet until he gets to france later so that makes sense uh, yeah um, mm -hmm. so, okay. So there's a couple other things in this book too. Now here's where he got into trouble. Um, and he, when he published, um, transfer, republished transfiguration of Romania later in his life, he took some of this stuff out. He has some intense ideas about what should be done to transfigure Romania. And one of them is to kick out all the Jews. Yeah. Um, now it's, <sighs> I want to make one distinguishing thing, say this about it. apparently, and I didn't read this passage. It's not any, it's not readily available, but according to his biographer, Charan frames this, not that it's a hatred for Jews, but what he's saying is, listen, listen, as long as the, as long as Jews are in Romania, 
the Romanians, us Romanians will never be able to compete with them and we'll never be able to take our rightful place culturally because they're in the way. And so he's kind of framing it as like, hey, I like the Jews, but like they're they're preventing the native Romanian person from taking the historical stage that we could. So we need to get rid of them. Um, It's not that ambivalence, I think, is fairly what some people would say is that that ambivalence is fairly typical, that dual Mm -hmm. fascination or admiration towards slash revulsion is yeah. is fairly characteristic of that yeah. sort of stereotypical attitude is that right all these people are both superior and inferior they're standing in our way they're actually better than us but also yep. c- certain aspects of them are deleterious at the same time right, right. and that's it, the, the problem that most people are gonna regardless of how you explain it or say no actually i think they're better than us right <laughs> the problem that most people are going to have is that uh the, the exclusionary attitude sure it's, yeah it's, and it, they just we can't coexist <laughs> it is a problem and it is a problem but you're right you're hitting the nail on that i mean chiron basically said they're more competent and sophisticated than us yeah right like it's literally it's not yeah it's not it's not a um I don't know. I'm not trying to excuse it at all. I'm just trying to like give sure, it a but, further but that is, layer. That is part of the history. And that that is, I think that is extremely typical of, of any kind of outgroup perception or perception of a minority group or marginalized group is that there are certain features which are superior and other features which are inferior. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a matter of how they assimilate, how they mix, and whether or not it's good for the whole or the mass. Right, right, right. Yeah, quite interesting. So he's in, back to the biography now, he's in Berlin for three years and then he comes back to Romania and he's given a job. This is like the last time he'll have a job or even maybe the first time he had a job. He did he did write, submit some articles and stuff and we're going to read one of them um, in the After Dark. Um, so he was doing kind of like German, uh, journalism, but it was more like comment, kind of commentary. Um, he teaches for, a, a, he teaches high school for a year in the town, town of Brasov. Um, and I have a couple of anecdotes from this. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. So one is his brother, Relu later in life says, uh, at one point, a student came in and asked Charan, uh, just asked the question, you know, like a student curious says, well, what is ethics, Mr. Charan? And Charan answered angrily, there's no such thing as ethics. <laughs> I love that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I love it because you're not, he's, he is right. Mm-hmm. It's, the, a these, 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 it's mm-hmm. right yeah right it's, yeah. it's like when uh yeah if if you are a philosopher you gain the reputation of being a philosopher and someone's like oh tell me what being is you're like just right. get out of my face right now right. Not, <laughs> right. About, you gotta give me you have to start with more for me yeah yeah right There's right about 15 questions before yeah. we can start talking <laughs> yeah. about this one yeah. right the pieces aren't even on the board we're just staring <laughs> at an empty board mm-hmm. right yeah 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 mm. now there's there's another part uh this is this time in brajov this year he spends teaching um and this is from the interview he does the itineraries of a hummingbird interview um the interviewer says you were also very taken with shakespeare in your youth right and charan says yeah i've got a really crazy story about that as i said i only worked in a profession for a year in my life i was a philosophy teacher in this high school when i was 25 it was a period when I was going through a sort of religious crisis, which resulted in nothing. I was reading a lot of mystics, but I was also reading a lot of Shakespeare. It's very odd because they have nothing in common. I was so caught up with Shakespeare, I thought all the rest were imbeciles. 
kind of right. And so I made the decision on my own. I said, I'm not speaking with anyone but Shakespeare. That had a that had tr- a troublesome consequence because it was a provincial city. I was in a cafe where I often went, and someone who was a teacher in the same school came up and, and asked, can I sit at your table? I said, yes, but who are you? I knew him. He said, but how's that? You know me. I'm the gym teacher at the school. I said, ah, but you're not Shakespeare. What do you mean? Of course I'm not Shakespeare. What an idea. Seriously, you're not Shakespeare. Then get out. He went immediately to the school and declared that I'd gone mad. <laughs> little eccentric. <laughs> A little eccentric. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to talk too much about this place, but I do want to mention a couple things about Bradshaw. So he's teaching in high school and it makes it sound like, okay, whatever, what's the deal there? But this is the thing. You have to, he's, a, he's a young Romanian intellectual of some degree of, uh, he's, no, he's a known entity, at least to the, into, into, to the intelligentsia. Um, he's probably put into this position at this high school as like a, uh, it's, it's one of the best schools in that city. He's probably brought in as a like, we're going to get this sort of interesting character who's written these books and who's, you know, at the, he's got his finger on the pulse of a Romanian cultural, you know, whatever. And, and Tehran just doesn't care. Like he's not, okay, he's going to teach for a year. He hates it. He doesn't want to show up. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to work fundamentally, right? Full stop. Um, anyway, so he's only there for a year before he then uh, heads to Paris. And now he's studying, he's supposed to be studying, quote unquote, studying uh, in Paris on a scholarship from the Bucharest uh, branch of the French Institute. Now this is in 1937, right? So World War II is still... It's, you know, we're not past that yet. We're we're still kind of pre. Yeah. So I just think it's interesting. Like you, you go to Paris in 1937, you don't have any idea what, what's about to happen, right? How things are about to go. He's going to be there during the occupation. Um, he doesn't really go back to Romania hardly ever after this move to France in 1937. He goes back once in 1940 to give a radio address in praise of the assassinated leader of the Iron Guard. And that in and of itself, between that and his writings, made uh, Sharon a somewhat of an outcast from Romanian culture until the end of the communist regime in 1989. So you know, he's, he's out, he's been, he first exiles himself and then he's eventually exiled properly by Romania. Um, okay. So let me tell you, this is him saying goodbye to Romania. It's again from searching for Sharon. <clears throat> In the Romania of 1930s, Sharon's young soul was haunted by two absolutes, neither of which he could actually believe in. Given the situation, his next step seems inevitable, inevitable. If not suicide, then self-exile. He undertook his own exile, not as a definite decision at a specific moment, but gradually grew into it over the next few years. In 1937, a few months before the publication of Tears and Saints, that's his next book, he left Bucharest and never returned except for a few days at the end of 1939 in a quick trip uh, between November 1940 and February 1941. He leaves Romania and he virtually disappears. War breaks out and he becomes his own underground man. We hear very little of him for almost 10 years when in 1947, he has the revelation that he must write in French and he never writes in Romanian or even speaks it except very rarely ever again. By 1949, when the French book he started composing in 1947 appears, uh, he has cast off both his Romanian language and identity and yielded to a long cherished obsession, not to be a Frenchman, but to be a man from nowhere. So 
this move to Paris, it's a big, it's a, it's a, it's a big step. And like we said, he never, he never really leaves. Um, our, our biography actually starts to get a little bit thin in this Paris period, which is really the rest of his life. Now, that's not to say that I don't have anything, but it's not, he's during the war. Nobody really knows what he's up to. Um, he's, uh, yeah, and and even he's he becomes increasingly reclusive, right, throughout the rest of his life. So it's tricky. It's tricky to even say, excuse me, other than the publications of his books, what he was doing when. Well, it's doesn't he, clear. in a way, assume his final form? To use a somewhat yeah. silly <laughs> phrase, but it, no, he it becomes much more reclusive. Mm-hmm. Lives in apartments, and then he even we can go into this maybe a little bit more. But he meets his lifelong partner for lack of a better term i hate that word but i it, do too but they not, didn't get married they never can you, married. Yeah, and it's can you is it his girlfriend maybe i don't know yeah. she lives with him but but common law wife yeah sure yeah. he yeah. But, but he comes into his own in the sense that he for the most part eschews social engagements uh with, with some exceptions so he's he's got someone to live with but he mostly devotes himself to reading and riding and taking long walks and riding his bicycle yep, around. Yep. And, and Paris is a great setting for that. And it is, I think it should be pointed out that he, I, th- I think maybe when looking over your notes, you, you mentioned that you might think, well, if he adopted this language, maybe he was something of a Francophile, but that doesn't really seem to be the case. I mean, he wasn't especially antipathetic towards France, but he, he didn't seem to be especially enamored of it either. But he, right. he, he needed a foreign language. Maybe it could have been another language, maybe somewhat random in in the language that he chose but he needed a place he needed an international or cosmopolitan city where he could camp out he could be isolated and he could move around in an anonymous fashion Mm -hmm. it it could have several cities could have fulfilled that function for him Mm -hmm. harris worked well enough and he lived with the bulk of his adult life as this anonymous reclusive figure he was writing he was reading but he also wasn't working and he right. wasn't participating in society in the ways that we typically think of as being participatory. Right. No, absolutely. And we're going to we got a couple little like sort of anecdotes and stuff about exactly that because he becomes a very interesting figure in a way as a character. He, he This is actually the most interesting period to me. Um, but OK, so a couple of things. One thing that happens in Paris, he does manage to cure his insomnia more or less and this is from the interview and i just thought this was a great bit and i like this interview this itineraries of hummingbird interview because his writing is so intense that i what i wanted and i was looking for this what i wanted was him just speaking in his own voice as he might speak to you right because is he constantly talking about the heights of despair in conversation it turns out not really right um okay so this is from that interview um talking about his cure from insomnia Um, I'll tell you, uh, apropos of that, this period of deep insomnia came to an end in France and you want to know how by the bicycle. It's rather curious. This phenomenon, I was a bit like someone suffering hallucinations. I'd been in Paris a few months and one day on the boulevard, someone offered to sell me a bicycle. It was a racing bicycle, not expensive at all. I said yes and bought it for, uh, which for me was a stroke of Providence, unheard of luck. I went all over France with that bicycle. I'd be gone for months because I had come here on a grant for several years from the French government to do a thesis from 1937 until the war till 1940. It was for me to do a thesis in philosophy, which I certainly did not do. 
I never went to the Sorbonne. I lied. But what with that, I uh uh sorry, but with that I'd cover kilometers and kilometers for months. I went all through the Pyrenees. I do a hundred kilometers a day, and it's this physical effort that allowed me to sleep. I remember France was very cheap before the war. I'd come into a village, I'd eat whatever I wanted, drink a bottle of wine, and then I'd go to sleep in the fields. It was a very natural life, very healthy, physical exercise morning till night. When you do 100 kilometers a day, there's no way you're not going to sleep. It's out of the question. So it wasn't due to medicine because I had, unfortunately for me, seen a lot of doctors in Romania and in France, and they all gave me medications that messed up my stomach and everything. That was the big danger. And even with sleeping pills, I only managed to sleep two or three hours at most. And then I'd have a headache all day. It was horrible. I was poisoned from sleeping pills. I don't take them anymore. And so this providential bicycle saved me. <laughs> so it's, it's literally just like, hey man, work out. Why don't you get some exercise? That yeah. is the last <laughs> thing I expected this dude right. to do. Right? I did not. Somebody stole me a bicycle on the street, and now I'm cycling around the Pyrenees. You could do this in Europe. You yeah. still can do this. You can get a mm -hmm. go to Switzerland one summer if you've got mm -hmm. the money together. Rent mm -hmm. a bicycle, buy a bicycle. You can just tootle around. Yeah, it, it yeah. is. It does fit a little bit better than maybe him taking up deadlifting. Right, it does. Yeah, it would be kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. Still, based yeah. on why I did not see this no. coming at all. No, yeah, because you imagine he's just sort of like riding along and looking at the birds and like it's not, it doesn't seem to be but, what Toronto would do. It also, if you think about it, it 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 is the only cure. Really, you have to exhaust yourself physically. There isn't yeah. no, you can't think your way into a yeah. sleeping state or you and pills maybe they work it depends but yeah. it, for the most part it's not as effective yeah. you know yeah. it's not healthy yeah right. you just gotta be you gotta be working out right yeah. and right yeah yeah it's simple it's not that yeah. complicated you know not you really. don't need a doctor not not really no. <laughs> not really barring some real medical thing yeah, yeah. there are people who have like actual like sure. neuro apnea and whatever else right yeah yeah um, other things he's doing, especially early on, so to survive, because he's not making that much money. He's, he's a grad student, basically, right? And we all know they that they oh, don't make much money. Something of a fake grad student. Yeah. yeah, he's not even showing up. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that's hilarious. And we'll get to a little bit of that. An interesting, unbelievably topic. based. I it, love is. It. it is. Take the take the French money. Right. <laughs> get on your Ride bicycle the bike around. And go. Yeah. 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 I, I guarantee some of the other people on similar arrangements don't have Wikipedia profiles like this that's, guy's. That's so right. Right. sometimes that's you gotta, right. yeah. I wish I had this. Yeah. Uh, right. yeah you, you're still, you're still young. Get a bike, Caleb, get a bike, yeah, get a bike. <laughs> solve right. I'm going to, I'm going to continue listening. I'm just going to top up my water yeah, as you go. Absolutely. All right. All right. Yeah. So, um, Okay, so to get by, he does a few things. One thing he does is he makes as much use of this perception that he's a student as possible. So he's eating in student cafeterias even after this period when he actually is a student, right? And I just think that's funny. You kind of just show up and you get in line, and you fill your plate, and you just yeah, you know right. try to be inconspicuous. He does that for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He does he does this for years, and he actually meets um, Simone. I think it's I think it's just pronounced Boo. Um, yeah. Simone, Simone Boo, uh, 1942, who, as we said, they are together in quotes till the end. She outlives him in the nineties. Um, they're together, they're together till the end. Um, another thing that he would do to make a living was he gained, earned himself something as a reputation of a reputation as a dinner conversationalist. And so he would angle to get himself invited to dinners because, oh, that crazy Romanian guy. Let's have him come and, you know, and gets a free meal out of the deal. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's, I, I love that 
like image. And apparently, one of the one of his a person he could count on to do this every week was a Romanian Jew, and I just think that that's interesting. Like what yeah. that meant to him, right? Did that if it make him get out of his abstraction about his anti-Semitic abstraction and like, yeah, it's just a kind of an interesting note. Um, there's uh, <laughs> there is this bit about uh. Oh, so one of the things, especially as war starts to kick off, um, if there's a sense that um, he had, you know, he's basically there on a grant from Romania. And though he's not sort of living up to expectations, I think there was like a point at which they Romania, the French Institute in Romania kept giving him his stipend or whatever, because like the war was coming and they just wanted to like kind of make sure he was taken care of that lasted for a little while. Right. So it was sort of like, yeah, we know you're not doing anything, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you're a Romanian figure. You have some degree of, we're just going to try and we're going to try and keep you alive for a while. Um, let me see. I think I have a little bit to read on that. Maybe. Yeah. Um, as far as we know, <clears throat> he never wrote a word of his thesis, and he was very frank in admitting it. He enrolled in the Sorbonne, but with no intention of attending lectures or following a course of studies. Instead, he was interested in getting the tickets which allowed him to eat in the student ref uh, refectories or get restaurant meals at reduced prices, a lifestyle that he continued to follow for several years after the war was over. Um, Let's see. Uh, his fellowship tenure was not affected by his lack of progress, except in one ironic way. When he sought to prolong his fellowship after the first two years, he was unable to get the two letters of recommendation required because he had been absent from all of his classes during that time. He literally just never showed up. Not even uh, a school up. No, it's kind of, kind of great. I, I admire this kind of thing so much. I love it. I just love it. He doesn't have anything. It's not like he has anything to fall back on either. I was you know raised I mean? by school teachers. If I got a B, it was a problem. Right, I, right. I still have nightmares. The nightmares have gone away. Not yeah. the nightmares, but the specific nightmare <laughs> about, about missing classes and things. Yeah. 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 This to me would be unthinkable. Mm -hmm. uh, although, well, I'm going to leave it at that. It's not about me, but I, I do, I do admire uh, this sort of attitude. It's, it's in a way, it's very French. Oh, he yeah. fit, he fits yeah. right in. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 1937, he writes his second to last book in Romanian. We're still not writing in French yet, and this book is called Tears and Saints. Um, I'm going to give you a little couple things. I didn't really read this one, to be honest. Um, I couldn't read the whole thing. So this is one that I sort of skipped over. Um, but there's a couple of little it's it's worth describing because so far now we've got Heights of Despair, which we read from, which is this sort of intense screed. And then we've got Transformation of uh, Transfiguration of Romania, which is this book that has sort of political uh, pretensions. And then this book, which is something completely different. Um, this is from Searching for Tehran. Tears and Saints is a meditation on saintliness, but not saintliness of the usual type. Excuse me. <clears throat> that is not the martyrs and heroes of traditional hagiography, worshipped for their virtues, but rather the mystics famous for their high degree of spirituality, their intimate personal knowledge of God, who brought about a new, quote, eruption of the absolute into history. The title refers to what is known in the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church as the, quote, the gift of tears. Um then a little bit further, Charon puts a twist on, on mystical discourse from the very beginning of this book, since for him, tears are not sweet but bitter. And then this quote is from the book itself. As I searched for the origin of tears, I thought of the saints. Could they be the source of tears' bitter light? Who can tell? 
To be sure, their tears are their trace. Tears do not enter this world through the saints, but without them, we would never have known that we cry because we long for a lost paradise. Show me a single tear swallowed up by the earth. No, by paths unknown to us, they all go upwards. Pain comes before tears, but the saints rehabilitated them. Right? So, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, he's he's, he's got some theological he's done some theological research he knows the lives of some of a number of the saints then he depicts in this book and that's very very poetic yeah Mm -hmm. i think in his mid-20s when he becomes interested in these saints and oftentimes i think for the most part not entirely but mostly female saints and he notes in one of his interviews that there's a morbid aspect but i would also add to that probably a lascivious facet as well too there's probably an erotic element involved there yeah i I bet there is yeah yeah there's something about that devotion and that like an extremist kind of thing that's the submission the Mm -hmm. the the female figure submitting to god and longing for that oneness or that absorption in that power i think it it has this fascination for him Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely um Talking a little bit more, so 1937. After that, I mean, the war comes to Paris. Um, and when it's under occupation, there's really not, it's really not clear what he was doing uh, or what was happening. Um, there's some mystery about how he got by even. And there was rumors that for a while he was providing cultural tours of Paris to German officers, which would have put him, if that were the case, um, I mean, he was arguably a collaborator, right? Um, so he was very quick to dismiss those rumors later on, but, you know, whatever. Paris, Paris, there's a, a book, I think, called something like The Band Played On. Uh, I can't re- exactly recall, but Paris Paris kind of went on functioning yeah, during in a way. this time, yeah. during the yeah. occupation. There were yeah. shows, there was mm-hmm. Paris was, obviously it wasn't the same, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I don't yeah. know that that's that damning. Uh, it I, might not I, be as damning as it sounds to someone right. who doesn't to really me, understand what was going to me, on. It's, to me, it's like you're kind of trying to get by. I mean, yeah. is that really? I don't know. I mean, it's certainly not the same as like fighting in the resistance or something, but it doesn't seem, I don't know. Hmm. People do things to make sure they have food. You know, it's not, sure. it's not that crazy. It still goes on. Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, here's now here's the other thing. So he's, there was always a constant, there was a constant threat that he would get dragged back to Romania and forced to serve in the army because he's in his mid twenties when it kicks off. Right. So it's constantly under threat that they're going to like bring him back. I mean, I can't imagine that he'd be that effective of a soldier, to be honest. Yeah, They weren't necessarily, the criteria were yeah. really all of that. Right. Can right. you bleed? <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Can yeah. you t- absorb bullets and bombs? <laughs> right. Right. No, exactly. I, I was uh, sniggering there because I was imagining the letter that he would write in response to the draft letter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I can't yeah. even imagine, but the yeah. sense of it is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, during the war, though, so apparently he's got he's constantly under threat that he's going to get dragged back to Romania and forced into the, into the military. Right. And here's just a little passage I thought was interesting. Um, Simone Boo, and this is the woman that he would spend, you know, 
the rest of his life with, recalled that he went during occupation, he went about everywhere with a packed suitcase, ready to decamp or go into hiding on a moment's notice. But the suitcase was also useful in a way perfectly emblematic of his ability to make art out of his troubles. He used it as a portable writing desk. So you need to imagine him carrying around this suitcase, never really sure exactly what's going to happen, sitting down in the park whenever and, and you know, smoking a cigarette buddy picked up off the ground and, and you know, writing the next book. Yeah. Um, uh, there's also in the interview you did with Jason Weiss, Itinerators uh, of a Hummingbird, um, Charon says that it was actually a friend that was kicking off the efforts to get Charon pulled back to Romania and, and thrown into the war. So there was this in, other Romanian intellectual at the Sorbonne that was sort of jealous of Charon's reputation and the fact that Charon wasn't doing anything, who kept putting words in the ears of the Romanian military, like, come get this guy. You should come get this guy. He's not doing any, but it was, you know, it was like a rivalry kind of thing, whether that's actually true or not. I don't know. Um, okay. So, Eventually, the war ends, of course. Um, and let's see, I got a little bit, a little bit to read here. Um, okay, this is sort of sums it all up <clears throat> about the war. Again, from searching for Tehran. By the end of the war, Tehran was, like many, many others, of course, at the end of his tether. In addition to all the deprivations he suffered along with everybody else, there was the exasperation and humiliation to his immense sense of self-pride. Again, common sense might find this ridiculously excessive, but common sense is not the measure for Tehran. He suffered his own humiliation. He didn't ask uh, sympathy for it. The author of five notable volumes in his native language and a sixth book he was just completing, he was less than a nobody in Paris. It was at this point that he began his own underground reconnaissance or resistance movement against the French literary establishment. He created something actually resembling a job. He began taking himself off to the Café de Flore scrupulously, quote, like a clerk, every day, sitting himself down uh, next to the intellectual headquarters of post-war French ex existentialism, the table occupied by Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Bouvier. How do you say it? De Bouvier? Beauvoir? <laughs> de Beauvoir? Yeah. Beauvoir, I think Beauvoir. so. Yeah. Simone de yeah. Beauvoir. <laughs> There you go. Okay. Yep. All right. Now that the real external enemy, the Nazis had gone defeated, Tehran set his sights on the, on the enemies or rivals within. He called Sartre a school teacher tainted by masochism. The ones he, he wanted to defeat uh, in the scene had, that became the primal scene at age 34 of the next last and most famous stage of his self-transforming life, his rebirth as a French writer, and even more crucially for him, a famous one. So, in this sense, this time period, trying to radically re-identify himself, he literally goes and sits next to Sartre day in, day out, listening to Sartre, who would become one of the most well-known philosophers of the 20th century and, and like a celebrity level. He was like the Zizek of his day, right? In terms of people knew who he was. Probably even more. So Probably, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, big deal. Yeah, yeah. household name. Yeah. Even, yeah. even in, into America. Right, uh, right. Yeah. Believe it or not. Which right. is sort of hard to imagine now. Yeah. But, and I mean, this yeah. is a little bit before that happens, but that's on the trajectory of that, right? And and Charan would go and sit next to him and listen to him. And apparently he never said a word. Yeah. Charan did. Imagine him sitting there just thinking, this fucker. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's so great. And absorbing, like you got your finger right on the pulse of and yeah. whoever else must have come in there, names we know and names we don't, right? But like that was his school. That was his graduate school really was sitting down in this cafe in here and, and, and listening to listening to 20th century French existentialism kind of 
I don't, I don't want to say being born, but tr- you know, a, a major turning point in it, right? As a developing idea. So yeah, very cool. Um, all right. So now he now okay. So we talk a little bit. This is uh, I'm gonna read another little bit. I know I'm reading a lot, but I like his voice and and all that. So um, he decides to learn French. He's got to become a writer in French because Romanian is you know, he doesn't like Romania, doesn't want to be a Romanian. He's trying to become something else, right? Some kind of cosmopolitan man. And that means writing in French. Now, here's him talking later on in the itineraries of a hummingbird article um, about this process. I hadn't studied French. In Romania, everyone knew a little French, not that they studied it. There were people who knew French extremely well, but that wasn't my case. Because I was born in Austria, Hungary, my parents didn't know a word of French. They spoke Romanian and Hungarian. We had absolutely no French culture. But in Bucharest, French was the second language in the intellectual milieu. Everyone knew French. Everyone read it. And it was very humiliating for me. I spoke French very poorly. My peers knew French quite well, especially among the bourgeoisie, of course. I read French naturally, but I didn't speak it. So I came to France in 37. I was 26. Instead of setting about to write in French, I wrote in Romanian up until 1947, but without publishing anything. I wrote lots of things. Then I was in a village in Normandy in 1947, and I was translating uh, uh, some text into Romanian. All of a sudden, it struck me that it made no sense. I'm in France. I'm not a poet to begin with. I translate poorly. Why am I doing this? I didn't want to go back to my own country, and that was a sort of illumination. I said, you have to renounce your native tongue. I came back to Paris with the idea of writing in French and set right to it, but it was much more difficult than I thought. It was even very difficult. I thought I'd just start writing like that. I wrote about 100 or 150 pages and showed them to a friend who said, that's not right. You'll have to do it all over again. I was furious, but that made me get serious about it. And I threw myself into the French language like a crazy person surrounded by dictionaries and everything. I did an enormous amount of work. I wrote the first book four times. Then when I wrote the next after that, I couldn't write anymore because the words disgusted me. Why write? Um, The syllogisms uh, de la Amertum, one of his books, are little odds and ends, fragments. And now it's the book of mine they read the most in France. In France. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, this is the period where he starts obsessively becoming a French writer. And he, he becomes not only a French writer, he becomes a preeminent stylist in French. Um, right. Uh, it takes a little bit of time, <laughs> a little bit of effort, obviously, but, but it is a self-transfiguration kind of moment, right? He's like, I'm not Romanian anymore. I need to evolve or die kind of situation. Um, yeah, so it's pretty fascinating. Um, all right. So we're going to, I think it's a good time to, to kind of just focus on his books for a little bit. Um, this period when he's in France post-war, um, Kevin, we're going to play our little game again. You're going to tell me when you want to read. Um, this right. is from his Bring short his short history of decay, the sixth part of the short history of decay. Um, this section is called abdications, and here are the titles. You tell me which one you want. The first is the rope, underside of an obsession, epitaph, secularization of tears. Yes, Flux, sec, secularization yes. of tears. Okay. Yes, I like that. That is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me get to it. All right. Being able to name things properly is a big part of being a fully realized human. That's true. Difficult. Yeah, it is. It is. Okay. This is from Tron. Only since uh, secularization of tears, only since Beethoven has music addressed itself to men before him. It was only, it was concerned only with God. 
Bach and the great Italians knew nothing of this descent toward the human, this false titanism which has diluted since the deaf man the purest art. The torsion of the will replaced the suavities, the contradiction of the feelings, the naive flight, frenzy, the disciplined sigh. Heaven having vanished from music, man was installed there. Where sin had once spread in gentle tears, it now displayed itself so that declamation overtook prayer, and the romanticism of the fall triumphed over the harmonious dream of deposition. Bach, languor of cosmogony, a scale of tears upon which our desires for God ascend, architecture of our, our fragilities, positive dissolution, the highest of all of our will. Celestial ruin in hope, the one mode of destroying ourselves without disaster and of disappearing without dying. Is it too late to relearn such dying out, or must, must we go on faltering without the benefit of the organ's chords? So, yeah, I mean, this book is, this book, Short History of Decay, is probably a good, if you're going to read, I mean, I don't know, Caleb, you might Call disagree. It introduction, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's a good entry point, really, yeah. because it's, it's not part of his immature period it's it's a hinge moment it's mm -hmm. it's on the way to a more mature period it's the maybe is that the first book he wrote in french it might be uh i think it is the first, his yeah. first book in french yeah so yeah that that is a good beginning point yeah and i found it quite compelling i i didn't read quite the whole thing i kind of skipped around in it which, which i think you can do just fine with oh, Jerome, yeah, yeah, honestly really yeah you don't it's yeah. not they're not these they're not these cohesive none of these books maybe transfigure transfiguration of romania is different but they're not they're not where he's working out a particular a, a single theme really, yeah it's it's he i mean his i think ultimately he wanted to just write sentences okay so after a short history of decay the next book he puts out and again i love his titles he is a artist of title a poet of titles in my opinion the next one is all gall is divided <laughs> i don't even know exactly what that means but i but it, it's provocative it gets the people going um <laughs> <laughs> this is his first book that is basically all aphorisms um uh it's you know he would tend towards his style but this is a book where it's just like it's basically bullet list of 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 things um uh and this is in talking about this book is where he he said um i like to write aphorisms because explaining things bores me um here's a couple of these uh aphorisms from all gaul is divided i love those nations of astronomers chaldeans assyrians pre-columbians who for the love of the sky, went bankrupt in history. Here's another one. The more disabused a man's mind, the more he risks, stricken by love, reacting like a schoolgirl. Another one. The creation, the creation, capital C, the creation was the first act of sabotage. The next one. Objection to scientific knowledge, colon. This world doesn't deserve to be known. Oh. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that's, one the, that's one of the better ones. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is so metal. What? <laughs> Say it again. Say it again. Objection to scientific knowledge. This world doesn't deserve to be known. Yeah. You can hear the chugging guitars. Yeah. You could take these and turn them yeah. into. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's another one that, that I quite like. Yeah. yeah. For real. real. Yeah. A nation that loves neither the sky nor earthly conquests should not be allowed to live. There are only two ways to die right on a battlefield or under the gaze of a star. 
I like that one too. <laughs> okay. So the next one, 1956, the next book, we're, we're just running through some of his books and then we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about his life. Um, the temptation to exist comes out in 1956. Again, great title. Um, this is from a New York times uh, review. I don't have a quote from the book itself, but, um, this is from a New York Times review. The phrase may be read, the phrase temptation to exist may be read as a commentary as well as having straightforward meaning when its terms are understood. What Sharon means by, quote, exist is best indicated by his use of it. Quote, Carpathian shepherds have made a much deeper impression on me than the professors of Germany, the wits of Paris. I've seen Spanish beggars and I should like uh, to have been their hagiographer. They had no need to invent a life for themselves. They existed, which does not happen in civilization. Temptation, on the other hand, is what the saints suffered, against which they developed the practice of ashishish, or spiritual exercise. Uh, they came to love their temptations, without which the exercises would no longer have made sense. So, um, yeah, I thought this the temptation to exist thing was going to be more like some kind of antinatalist sort of thing. but I, And he's accused of being an antinatalist at times, but I'm not convinced that he actually is. Um I didn't really actually encounter anything where he says, you know, you shouldn't have children. <laughs> like, no. yeah, that's much more contemporary. It really is. I don't think anybody had that thought until like the last 50 years, probably. Yeah, and certainly hadn't elaborated <laughs> upon it in that. I don't know. Who is it? David Benatar is it? Yeah. Prominent. That guy. That yeah. guy. He's useless. He's useless. Yeah, not, not <laughs> He's the most useless person. You know what's fun about those guys is they won't have any kids. They yeah. are gone. Yeah. We'll be over go. here having kids and having yeah. grandkids, and you'll be gone. Right, right, right. Um, next book that comes out is History and Utopia. That's the one that uh, Caleb read from up at the beginning. Uh, this is 1960. It's a book that starts out as criticism of the Socialist, Socialist Republic in Romania. Um, in the, the Socialist Republic in Romania, very Marxist-Leninist, one-party state, controlled Romania from 1947 to 1989. Um, so long time, right? Um, uh in this book, Tehran makes the argument that for a society to function, it needs to have a sense of its own utopia to sort of draw you toward it. Um, and further, he makes the point that the dream of freedom is essentially impossible as it will always be at odds with excess and development, which is the natural course of things. I do have a little bit to read from this. Just a short little thing, I think. Let me see. 142. Again, I'm reading from... Um, this is an excellently done biography, by the way, the searching for Chiron. Um, it gets a little at the end. She died. I think, I think how it worked is she passed away before she finished it. So the last like third of it is just her, her notebooks, but it's really interesting because she describes in her notebooks, like right after it happened, going to see Chiron in his hospital bed. Right. And those kinds of things. It's very, it's pretty cool. Um, let's see if I can find this bit. Um, Oh, you know what? That's not the right spot. Okay. Um, Tehran bitterly reproaches Western civilization for its many missed opportunities to achieve its social dream. Thus, in History and Utopia, he writes that the West has not initiated the revolution that was its imperative, the revolution that its entire past demanded, nor has it carried to their conclusion the upheavals of which it was, it, which it was the instigator. Not content with having betrayed all those precursors, all those schismatics who have prepared it and formed it from Luther to Marx, it, the West, still, still supposes that someone will come from outside to initiate its revolution, to bring it back, to bring back its revolutions and its dreams. 
Impotent because liberal and tolerant, the West allowed Russia and its satellites to botch its dreams of utopia. But even the type of utopian society built by Soviet Russia, its, in, uh, its inequities notwithstanding, is closer to Tehran's ideal of social and political order because it possessed a vitality and virility that never fails to draw his praise. Quote from Tehran, those SARS with their look of dried up divinities, they were... Um, as are these recent tyrants who have replaced them closer to a geological vitality than to human anemia. Despots perpetuating in our time the primordial sap, the primordial spoilage, and triumphing over us all by their inexhaustible resources of chaos. Um, he, yeah. he seems to really be wrestling with being, authentic yeah. being, which is indescribable. Right. Like, it's it's almost like he's an esthetician. He's describing a vibe, right, right, right. Yeah, he's tying it into these embodied states too. He's always describing the convulsions of the flesh, the churning of the blood, the bubbling of the brain. It's very organic. It's still extremely earthy and terrestrial at the same time. I think that's almost nobody, maybe no one has done that, has married those states, those abstract reflections, being as the most vague or general concept, mm -hmm. of rooting that in this fleshly embodied condition as well. Yeah, I think the only other people who really even try to do this and maybe unwittingly would be people who are actually right. I mean, this is something that you people a writer might try to do in a novel, right? To do yeah, obli right. obliquely yeah. and kind of sketch around the the perimeter of it. And he's sort yeah. of going right into it, right? It's yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, 1964, he writes a book called The Fall Into Time, which is one that I have read pretty much the whole thing. Quite good. It's my favorite of them. Um uh, and this is kind of interesting because, um, so Tron in this is exploring, interestingly enough, some themes that are discussed in Mircea Eliade's book, The Myth of Eternal Return, which is, uh, I've just read that a few months ago. It's one of my favorite recent reads. Um, there's this notion of this time, the time before in anthropology, uh, in which we don't really live in time, or at least not time as we conceive of it now, right? It's you live in something like in this eternal present uh, within a cycle that's not quite linear, um, and in which nothing new really ever happens, right? Because everything that's done is a ritual reproduction of something done previously by the gods. This is how Eliad lays this out, and Charan is operating in some of this same territory, but he's doing it in his very Charan-like uh, style. Um, this book includes what Tron would later say is his favorite piece of writing, which is the final chapter of The Fall Into Time. I'm going to read a little bit of that. <laughs> time is so, uh, quote from Tron, time is so constituted that it does not resist the mind's insistence on fathoming it. Its density disappears, its warp frays, and all that is left are a few shreds with which the analyst must be satisfied. This is because time is not made to be known but lived. To examine, to explore time is to debase it, to transform it into an object. He who does so will ultimately treat himself the same way, since every form of analysis is a profanation, indulgence in it is indecent, and we descend into our secrets in order to stir them up. We proceed from embarrassment to queasiness and from queasiness to horror. Self-knowledge always costs too much. Okay, here's another little bit. The good thing about freedom is that we are attached to it uh, precisely insofar as it seems impossible. Still better, we can deny it 
And this negation has constituted the great resource and the basis of more than one religion, more than one civilization. We cannot praise antiquity enough for believing that our destinies were written in the stars, that there was no trace of improvisation or chance in our joys and our miseries. Unable to oppose so noble a, quote, superstition by anything more than the laws of heredity, our science has disqualified itself forever. Once we each had our our quote star. Now we find ourselves slaves of an odious chemistry. This is the ultimate degradation of the notion of, of destiny. So Charon is not a science truster. Uh, <laughs> science denier, perhaps. Science denier. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, here's another quote. Again, this is a re- reason I'm reading these. Is this is what Charon identified. These are excerpts from the chapter that Charon identified as his, oh. and by his estimation, his best piece of writing. It is not at all unlikely that an individual crisis will someday become generalized and thereby acquire a significance no longer psychological, but historical. This is not a matter of mere hypothesis. There are signs we we must get used to interpreting. Uh, After having botched the true eternity, man has fallen into time where he has managed, if not to flourish, at least to live. In any case, he has adapted himself to it. The process of this fall and this adjustment is called history. Um, yeah, so I, I quite like this. Uh, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, he's talking about some real difficult things to articulate about what it means to live in, you know, what has the modern condition done to our perspective of time and how we live in time and what time means. Right. Um, I remember Don DeLillo, I think it's in, um, uh, Omega Point or whatever that book he says something like cities were created uh, to destroy time. Mm, yeah. Right, it's sort of like it's like the modern condition. You you're living in an artificially occupied territory that what is time and it used That's to what be technology time. does now even more mm-hmm. so than accelerated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Digital technology just time is a burden. Time is torturous. Mm-hmm. And it's also torturous to articulate the effect of time mm-hmm. on the human psyche and sensibility. And we have all of these devices and means of eliminating that sense of time weighing on us. Yeah, I'd like that mm-hmm. idea. The city is almost a piece of technology in itself. Urbanization or the urbanization is, yeah. is a piece of technology that speeds up time and helps us forget about its sense weighing on us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes, yeah, it's a... Uh optimizing engine right that just yeah. uh, just threshes everything yeah, yeah. Ugh. so Charon knew that <laughs> he was he was hip to it um now the next book he writes is um comes out in 1969 um this is called uh the evil demiurge or the new gods and this is where he does talk a bit about being he does i think at least in this book he would position himself as more or less a gnostic um in that the God who created this world is a liar and is incompetent, is evil. Um, and there is a God above that God. Um, so I'll give you a couple quotes from this. Um, it's quite a good read. I've read most of it. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. He has this part. I'm not going to read it. He has this part where he goes to a museum in Paris, in Paris, and he's, he's looking at fossils. Um, and then he just, he has this total skitzed out moment of just like seeing deep time happen. Um, it's, it's pretty cool, but it's, it's quite lengthy. Um, all right. So this is a couple quotes from uh, the new gods quote, freedom is the right to difference being plurality. It postulates the dispersion of the absolute 
its resolution into a dust of truths equally justified and provisional. There's an underlying poly polytheism in liberal democracy, call it an unconscious polytheism. Conversely, every authoritarian regime partakes of a disguised monotheism. Curious, the effects of monotheist, uh, monotheist logic. A pagan, once he became a Christian, tended toward intolerance. Better to founder with a horde of accommodating gods than to prosper in a despot's shadow. Right, here's another one. It's hard to see how for a believer, the God he prays to and another quite different God can be equally legitimate. Faith is exclusion, defiance. It is because Christianity can no longer detest the other religion, uh, the other religions. It is because it understands them that it is finished. The vitality from which intolerance proceeds is an increasingly short supply. Now intolerance was once uh, Christianity's reason for being. To its misfortune, it has ceased to be monstrous. Like polytheism in its decline, it is stricken. It is paralyzed with an excessive breadth of views. Its God has no more prestige for us than Jupiter had for the discomfited pagans. What does the chatter around the death of God come down to, if not to Christianity's death certificate? We dare not attack religion straight on. We assail the boss, reproaching him for being insipid, timid, temperate. Excuse me. No one any longer fears or respects a God who has squandered his capital of cruelty. We are marked by all those centuries when to believe in him was to fear him, when our terrors imagined him at once compassionate and unscrupulous. Okay, one more real quick one. In the eyes of the ancients, the more gods you recognize, the better you serve divinity, whereof they are but the aspects, the faces. To seek to limit their number was an impiety, to suppress them all for the sake of but one, a crime. It is of this crime that Christians made themselves guilty. <laughs> so not really a Christian in any sense, right? Um, yeah, I don't have much to say about it other than just laying those out there, I suppose. Echoing that idea, and this is also Nietzschean, that uh, tolerance or acceptance of other viewpoints is a sign, a symptom, a symbol of decadence, of declining vitality. Right. And that looks extremely Chironian, that if you are vital, if, if you are at home with yourself, you are necessarily intolerant. You don't mm -hmm. accept what other people believe. You want to impose, you want to dominate. It's a sign of ascending life. You, you should be seeking out weaker beings to impose your will upon. And if you're letting them do whatever they want, then that means you're on the downswing. Right, right. Interesting. Our house, our rules. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> mm. Um, okay, so those are kind of the the. We're, he had a couple, a few other books: "The Trouble with Being Born," which is published in 1973; "Drawn and Quartered," which comes out in 1979; and then uh, "Anathemas and Admirations," 1987. I'm not going to read anything from those. I feel like we've got a pretty good sense of you know the various his various publications every um, paragraph like a sledgehammer it really is. very ideas. hard hitting yeah, yeah. yes yeah. Mm. yeah so let's give it let's give it a few other biographical details about this period in paris which is actually you know 1937 to when did he say he died 1995 yeah 95 which is yeah. wild he yeah his, his life spanned almost the entirety of the 20th century pretty much yeah 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 kind of crazy he could have heard right? nine inch nails he could have. <laughs> he could have heard Nirvana. Yeah. 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 Crazy. It's true. It's true. I did see on the Wikipedia that he said uh, this, and maybe Brad, you're going to get to it, no, but it's it. too good. Uh, he said regarding God, 
Chiron had has noted that without Bach, God would be a complete second-rate figure. <laughs> yeah. And that Bach's music is the only argument proving the creation of the universe cannot be regarded as a complete failure. <laughs> also, Schopenhauerian and Nietzschean in that uh <laughs> that elevation of music to the, the top yeah. of the arts or as uh, as redeeming existence in a way. Yeah, mm. and I don't I mean I don't even totally disagree. Like to me, well, I mean that gets into my like there is a certain way to me that like art and I don't have it limited to like one person. It's not one artist, right? But like to one me there podcast. Is, right. <laughs> there is jo- the existence of the yeah. Joe Rogan experience <laughs> is proof yeah. of divine proof that, intelligence. Yeah, proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or at least he wants us to have cage fighting. Something, yeah. <laughs> um so a couple other things about his life in Paris, right? 50 it's like 50 plus years, but it, we don't have a ton of biographical details. Um, 1942, as you, as you said, he meets this woman, Simone, uh, boo, um, they lived together for the next 50 odd years though. They never did get married. As we said, um, she would end up being his sort of most, the most strident defender of his legacy. So she's there at the end, trying to figure out who's going to get to publish what, who's got access to the letters, all of this. She ends up being a little in over her head, to be honest, not through her fault, but it's a lot. Um, Anyway, they did live a kind of an odd life together. So they never get married. That's one thing. They never really went out in public together. Um, and in fact, when they lived, when they did live in the same place, this little attic apartment, which we're going to talk to talk about a little bit more, she would pull a bookshelf over the door to his part of the apartment. So his parent, her parents wouldn't know he was there. So it was very like this relationship's very yeah. odd. There's yeah. an element of disavowal there. Yeah. 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 Um, but they were together. I mean, they didn't, they, they lived sort of separate lives, but they were sort of together. They, you know, they never had any children or anything. Um, yeah, very strange. I have a little bit to read on that. Um, and this is again from searching for Charon. Uh, so this is, this is from, uh, this is the author of searching for Charon is talking to Simone later in life in the nineties. <clears throat> she Simone reminisces about their life together. Together yet separate, since she never went out into society with him. She sounds oddly proud of her self-effacement. He never asked her about her family or her work teaching English at school. I listen and marvel as she recalls the many nights she used to stay up waiting for him, sometimes till dawn or even after. How she cried and beat the pillows with her fists. How he would return unshaven, disheveled, and surprised to find her in such a state. She led a double life, divided between Charan and her family. She lied to her mother about sharing an apartment with someone she didn't know. She used to put a bookcase in front of the connecting door between their rooms when her mother came to visit. She used to spend half summers with Charan, the other half with her mother and her brother's family, bringing up three nephews. One of her nephews visited her recently, and when he saw a book by Charan on the table, made the connection between the writer and the name on the door, and exclaimed, Is this the same man? I love his books. Soon afterward, Charon himself wandered into the room in his bathrobe, hearing voices and thinking that it was morning. He had lost his sense of time. This is when he's an elderly man. He had lost his sense of time and asked for his breakfast. He met the nephew who was stupefied at discovering his aunt's double life. So Whoa. very odd situation, Wild. right? Yeah. yeah. 
the red pill guys need to talk about Sharan game. How you yeah, right. <laughs> ignore, isolate. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Don't ask her any questions ever. Ever inquire into yeah. her life. It's a power right. move. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. If this guy wanted to neg, I'm sure he was able to neg. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, everything. Yeah. yeah. Right. Ontologically, neg her yeah. ontologically. Yeah. Deny yeah. her existence. You don't right. even exist. Right. <laughs> It's hilarious. But also, can you give me some eggs, please? Yeah, yeah I do. Some eggs. eggs. And also, yeah, right. really poor. I'm also really poor. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Look, if, if this guy, if this guy can do it, there's hope. Yeah, right. right. If you're out there, there right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're gonna make it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So at some point he does uh, quit smoking, but I couldn't figure out like when. I think it's sometime in the '60s he stops smoking and drinking. I just wanted to read this little bit from the probably interview. why he lived uh, into the '90s. Yeah, but I mean he smoked until his '50s, so it's not. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Uh. Anyway, this is from the itineraries of a hummingbird interview. So this is the interviewer. I read that uh, quote years now without coffee, without alcohol, without tobacco. Was it because of your health? And then Sharon responds, yes, my health. I had to choose. I was drinking coffee all the time. I drink seven cups of coffee in the morning. It was one or the other. But with tobacco, it was the most difficult. I was a big smoker. It took me five years to commit, uh, quit smoking. Oof. Excuse me. And I was absolutely desperate each time I'd try. I'd cry. I'd say, I'm the vilest of men. It was an extraordinary <laughs> struggle. In the middle of the night, I'd throw the cigarettes out the window. First thing in the morning, I'd go buy some more. It was a comedy that lasted five years. When I stopped smoking, I felt like I'd lost my soul. I made the decision. It was a question of honor. Even if I don't didn't write another, uh, I said, even if I don't don't write another line, I'm going to stop. Tobacco was absolutely tied up with my life. I couldn't make a phone call with a cigarette. I couldn't answer a letter. I couldn't look at a landscape without it. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, he would write letters, and you know, just talking about how he occupied his time. He'd write letters to friends. He maintained relationships with some of the Romanian guys that he knew, with Eliad and uh, Ionescu and a, and, and a few others. Um, he spent a lot of his time just walking around Luxembourg Gardens, which people know it's a it's a big it's a big public park in Paris. Um, you just kind of wander around there all hours of the night. Um, he was a, a bit of a hypochondriac later in his years. And friends, I couldn't find any anecdotes like a specific instance of this. But apparently more than one person who knew him said that he was prone to uh, fits of violence. Now, I don't know what fits. I don't know what a fit of violence to me means you hit somebody, but I, I don't know. I don't you know what it means. Something you could break something. Yeah. Plate at a wall or right. Know, break yeah. a glass. There's a range. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm, so not, not uh, about it. <laughs> yeah, right. Mm -hmm. uh, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I'll just put it, push it, point <laughs> yeah. it inwards. Yeah. I know. I know all about that. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay. So, let me, I got a couple other things. I mean, I, I want to, one thing that's important, I think, to note is there's something that I think of as like the Choran contradiction. So he's known as a philosopher and a writer, but he doesn't identify as any of those things. Um, and let's, I'll give you a, um, something else from this interview, <clears throat> the itineraries of a hummingbird. Um, interviewer says, though, as you've written, it was also a paradox for the, myst the mystics that they wrote books. And Charon answers, yes, why do they write since they're writing for God? God doesn't read. 
So one can't dwell on the ultimate consequences of an attitude. One would have to either become a monk or commit suicide. In the end, one has to admit that life is made of these contradictions. That's what's interesting. If I identified completely with what I've written, for example, I wouldn't have written. That's the whole problem. What should I have done? I should have been a sage, but I couldn't. I wanted to be one, but I didn't manage to. So I wrote books. Everything I've done has been the result of a spiritual failure. But for me, that is not necessarily a negative concept. Okay. So um, here's another little bit from this interview that I didn't really know where to stick it, but it kind of relates to this. So they're asking him, you know, um, about his insomnia and writing in insomnia. So did you write much through all those sleepless nights? They ask him. He says, yes, but not so much. You know, I've written very little. I never assumed it as a profession. I'm not a writer. I write these little books. That's nothing at all. It's not an oeuvre. I haven't done anything in my life. I only practiced a trade for a year. I was a high school teacher in Romania, but since I've never practiced a trade, but since I've never practiced a trade, I live just like that, like a sort of student and such. And that I consider the greatest success in my life. My life hasn't been a failure because I succeeded in doing nothing. Yeah, I think that is the best summary of of his life and yeah. it also it does make a certain sense when he, and it, when you think of his self understanding too when he says i'm not really a writer or i'm not really a philosopher yes he has published books but also at the same time he's not an institutional figure he was not ever a mouthpiece for an ideology maybe early on a little bit but mm-hmm. for the greater part of his life all his books He's not a figure for a movement. He's not a proponent of one school or another. He wrote probably, and if you think of all the time he had on his hands, if you really, if you were to break that down quantitatively into some sort of productive sense, like how much was he writing? Probably not that much considering he didn't have a family. He didn't have a job. He probably wasn't really writing that much. It still amounts to over a lifetime, several books, but those books are composed of fragments also. Yeah. It's it's like a 150 page book every three or four years. Yeah. And with all the time he had at his disposal, it's not a lot of sustained writing. He wasn't under publication pressure. No. And he didn't, he didn't have to produce anything to advance any agenda either. So it, no. it actually, it's not just coy or coquettish for him to say, well, I'm not even really a writer. Mm-hmm. In, in a certain sense, it, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he certainly, I mean, he certainly saw himself that way. Um, there was an interesting thing too. They they kept he did accept an award um, for a short history of decay, um, but after that he wouldn't accept rewards anymore. And he kind of played it like he didn't care, um, which I think was partially true. But there was also I think, um, and this plays into his reclusion too. I think he was a little scared of the Iron Guard associations kind of coming back to yeah, haunt yeah. him. You they know, he's like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. And he had that sort of youthful dalliance with this group. And it's like, well, if I get this award in Paris, somebody's going to dig up what I was doing 20 years ago. And I don't know if I want to have that conversation. <laughs> yeah, it seems fair to say he probably didn't care that much for the attention anyway. Mm-hmm. But then that probably also reinforced it as yeah. well. I don't know that he would have been all that concerned about positive attention. Right. But he probably did fear the negative attention as well. And and if he if he, if explaining things bored him, as he put it at one point, then explaining yeah. his associations would have been boring and even painful. more boring. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think, I mean, it's interesting too, because despite that, all that, when he was a young man, he was like kind of like a furnace of ambition. Like mm-hmm. he wanted, excuse me, he wanted to win. He wanted to be the greatest. He wanted, he wanted Sart. Sart he saw as like a rival, right? Um, and then that kind of peters out at some point. It's sort of like you wonder, you know, what his what he thought of his own youthful ambition and i was kind of looking for signs of that and it's not clear it's to be like he ended up in paris was yeah. financially taken care of got mm. a bicycle met a woman <laughs> yeah yeah and was well, living yeah. yeah i mean being able you can say that you have ambition to conquer the world and to do all these influential things but if yeah. you manage to live for 50 years without having a job if that's an awesome that is that is an ambition that few can realize especially yeah, if, if you don't come from money yeah and then of course yeah. if you come from money then you have all of these duties and obligations yeah. to the money right, yeah right yeah no so there's, a way, there's a there's a courage to it too yeah there's a courage certain kind of and you have to work hard neat yeah, yeah, yeah. An elite sure. neat. Yeah. Very good. So cool. we're we're yeah, we're so we're getting kind of towards the end, but I do want to talk about his final years. Okay. It's kind of All quick-ish. Right. Now, yeah, yeah. Starting around 1990, he starts to exhibit signs of Alzheimer's. And this would eventually be what kills him. His official cause of death is Alzheimer's. Um, it takes about five years for this, like he start, starts slowly declining and then rapidly declining until he dies in this this uh hospital in Paris. What I know um, of Alzheimer's, that's usually how it goes there's yeah. a long period of a slow <laughs> decline yeah yep. and then there is a pretty yeah it drop fall. it drops off quick yeah, yeah. Well, the same way that empires go yeah slowly <laughs> then bit. all at yeah. once slow yeah. decline mm-hmm. and then collapse yeah mm-hmm. yeah um in 1993, oh, and there's a couple odd things he does towards this, this last period. He buys himself a cemetery plot in Montparnasse. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Montparnasse. it. Montparnasse. Right. Yeah, yeah, Montparnasse. Um, he mm-hmm. buys himself a fu- funeral plot, and then he would go there regularly and just stare at it. Cool. <laughs> pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if, if you ever like you in a certain sense all his life, also yeah. staring into his open grave. Yeah. yeah. But if you've ever gotten really excited about renting an apartment or buying a house <laughs> you thing. drive by you go that's yeah. the house that's yeah. that, that's where i'm gonna be right 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 think of all yeah. the fun things that won't happen there yeah 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 for real that's hilarious um all right 1993 this is a great quote because this is towards the end this is 1994 95 he's basically you almost can't communicate with him he gets so bad but 1993 um the biographer yinka zarif paul johnston she asks Charon what he's writing. He says he no longer writes. And this is a quote from him. I don't want to slander the universe anymore. I've done it long enough. Don't you agree? I love yeah. that slandering the universe. And don't you intense. agree? Yeah. 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 <laughs> don't you think? Yeah. That's probably, <laughs> there's enough. So. Yeah. He, uh, he lived longer. He lived into the more recent past than Cobain did. Yeah, that's true. Which is always, <laughs> that crazy. always yeah my mind yeah 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 mm-hmm. now i want to read a little bit this is probably going to be the last uh bit we read unless caleb's got some stuff he wants to read um and i thought this was appropriate so he ends his life with alzheimer's i mean there's times he doesn't know who he is he doesn't recognize other people he's very difficult to communicate with right he gets confused um now 
in Heights of Despair, he wrote a chapter or an essay entitled Premonition of Madness, which, you know, so this is 60 years earlier, he writes this Premonition of Madness. I'm going to read a little bit of it. We generally, uh, this is from Choran, quote, we generally find it hard to understand that some of us must go mad, but sliding into chaos where moments of lucidity are like short flashes of lightning, of lightning is an inexorable fatality inspired pages of absolute lyricism in which you are the prisoner of a total drunkenness of being can only be written in a state of such exalted nervous tension that any return to equilibrium is an illusion one cannot live normally after such efforts a little bit further down the page it is impossible to pinpoint and define this strange premonition of madness the truly awful thing in madness is that we sense a total and irrevocable loss of life while we are still living I continue to eat and drink, but I have lost whatever consciousness I bring to my biological functions. It is only an approximate death. In madness, one loses the specific individual traits which single one out in the universe, the personal perspective, and a certain orientation of consciousness. In death, one loses everything by a fall into nothingness. That is why the fear of death is persistent and essential, but actually less strange than the fear of madness, in which our semi-presence creates an anxiety more complex than the organic fear of the total nothingness of death. But wouldn't madness be an escape from the misery of life? Okay, then one more little bit. The specific form of one's madness is determined by organic and temperamental conditions. <clears throat> Since the majority of madmen are depressive, depressive madness is inevitably more common than pleasant, gay, manic exaltation. Black melancholy is so frequent among madmen that almost all of them have suicidal tendencies, whereas for sane people, suicide appears a very problematic solution. I would like to go mad on one condition, namely that I would become a happy madman, lively and always in a good mood, without any troubles and obsessions, laughing senselessly from morning to night. Um, so he writes that as a young man, and then he eventually kind of lives it. I mean, his he's I had Alzheimer's and he's becoming more and more um uh you know has his dementia is more and more severe but he does according to the biographer he does seem to be in generally a good mood he's happy to see people he's still flirting with nurses that kind of thing right he's you know he's he's okay um for a while um simone boo his common law wife would come to the hospital while he's got alzheimer's and just show him his books and explain to him that he wrote these Right. <laughs> that's a nice way to end right is that yeah show you that look you wrote this you did you did do something yeah. you'd be like oh okay oh, yeah okay yeah yep. very, deathbed very uh brad here i'm gonna put the headphones right on your right on your <sighs> noggin there and uh <laughs> listen back to all of the crazy hours of podcast oh gosh oh no <laughs> you really start to lose your mind because it's your own voice it's your, your own younger voice. self just like oh rolling God. rolling around you're talking about yeah. this crazy dude <laughs> yeah um i got one more thing i want to and All then right. we'll chat a little bit okay so yeah 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 he dies now remember his, his relationship with romania right he sort of love hates it he wanted it to get better but he never wanted to be there he doesn't go back he doesn't go back for decades um he's got family that he's just left there um he and yet he you know he's become a french person essentially you've lived most of your life in another country you're kind of from that place more than what you're where you're from right um and yet when he dies he dies after so when there was the communist regime up until 1989 um Chiron was verboten they didn't publish him you weren't allowed to read him nobody even most people didn't even know who he was unless they were really into the minutiae of romanian cultural history he was more known in france than he was in romania but when he dies 
there's this attempt to revisit him as this um, this prominent Romanian figure, right? He's now he's a cultural hero, even though he's completely forgotten about us and uh, like said he would never write another word in Romanian, didn't even speak in Romanian, even to other Romanians, right? Um, but when he dies, there's this attempt to reclaim him as a Romanian cultural hero. So I'm going to just read a little bit about this. And this is this is from the notebook part portion of um, Searching for Charan. Um, this is a couple of years after Charan has, has passed away. <clears throat> I'm back in Bucharest after three days in Sibiu at the Koran uh, Colloquium. Turan Colloquium, a patriotic affair with folklore thrown in for local color, not an academic conference, though pretending to be one. Turan had become a national monument. In his honor, we sing hymns and give grandiose speeches. We are all oh so proud to be his compatriots, basking in his glory, which rubs off on us, all of us, little Chorons, little budding undiscovered geniuses. We congratulate each other for belonging to his race, his country, for being in this town, for rubbing shoulders with his brother, etc. What a circus. The opening of, opening of the conference was like a mock opening of parliament, a multitude of platitudinous political speeches from the mayor of Sibiu, the parliamentary representative, the head of the youth league, the head of the tourist office, and a number of other heads and dignitaries. You wonder how many of those people actually read any Tehran, right? <laughs> it took place in the main reading room of the Astro Library, where Tehran used to read. I spent the entire time looking at the people around me and up at the ceiling, a high ceilinged room in neoclassical style with freshly repainted gold trim on the walls and the busts of mythical looking women supporting the ceiling vault in its four corners. The public was mixed, but in great numbers for Tehran is the brother of us all. All right, reading another part. One speaker, a former priest, apparently a university professor, and now Romania's designated ambassador at the Vatican, a pompous little man, folded his hands on his stomach, rolled his eyes toward the ceiling and talked soaringly for what seemed like hours on end, as if God had forgotten him there speaking in the desert. Another Greek woman art artist whose multimedia sculpture was unveiled afterward launched herself into an interminable Swedenborgian kind of paper connecting Charon with everything else in the universe, but especially with Greek myths, which she proceeded to recount in detail. Things got rather heated when the structuralists attacked just about everyone else for talking about Charon in terms other than the purely formalistic. People were jumping up from all over, invoking nerds, uh, invoking the names Heidegger, Gadamer, Barthes, Lacan, Kundera, flying right and left without making much sense. Right. So they don't they think they know what to do with them, but they don't know what to do with them. Right. Um, and there's this I find it. You wonder what he would have thought of this, this this Romania trying to reclaim him when he's like, I literally burned my bridge so I would never go back there spiritually, linguistically, psychologically, historically, right? I abandoned you. And now you're so desperate for cultural heroes that you're willing to have like the mayor of a town, you know, talk about my greed against this. God. So we're going to reappropriate. Communism <laughs> will do that to you, though, won't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty much the story. That's the Choran story. Um, All right, Brad. I, yeah. Nice Caleb, I don't know if you have any I, other sort yeah, of, before we, 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 we jump yeah, into let's the just dark. pause and just uh, applaud Brad for very well. We always stop and just go very well done, Brad. Oh, I had no it. idea who this fellow was. I really appreciate it. Uh, Caleb. Yeah. It's comprehensive. Yeah. yeah. I have one aphorism i'd Please. like to read which is a little bit off the beaten path and it's from his i think his book that came out in 1987 anathemas and admirations it's another one that's a little bit under the radar and this to me is not at 
this gets a little bit more at the humor, I think, is mm. the dry wit. And I hope this comes across and maybe, and I hope if I need to explain it, also explanation kills a joke or humor, but yeah. I hope the, I hope other people find this as funny as I do. Maybe I just have a very peculiar sense <laughs> of humor, but I think I share it with Jaron. Uh, okay, it goes like this. How we must have loathed each other in the pestilential darkness of the caves. Easy to understand why the painters who managed to keep body and soul together there had no desire to immortalize the image of their kind, why they preferred the figures of animals. So to me, that's a, it's just a joke because who else would think, who else would look, because we're all familiar vaguely uh, with the cave paintings, right? Mm -hmm. and, and they're always animals. It's always a right. boar or a bear or something like that. But who else other than Charan would look at that and think, those guys in those caves, why didn't they paint other guys? Right. They must have fucking hated each other. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. It's a good, it's, it's hilarious. It's really funny, but yeah. it's, it's still very dry. And but yeah. it just, I think it encapsulates so his very morbid and dark, but all, but wry sense of humor too. Mm. It's something that I find extremely endearing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are going to talk more about Sharon on the After Dark. Uh, Caleb, can you can you give people your Twitter handle one more time here on the core episode? The Twitter handle is uh, capital L lit, so L I T, and then capital M middle. M I D D L E, and the Twitter book film. is the neighbor. The book is the neighbor. Yes, yeah. the neighbor. Please highly recommend. Caleb. Yes, yes. And Brad, we've got to close with the question, which you have to yeah. throw. And I suppose Caleb and I can both take a whack at yeah. it. I'll let I'll let the guests go first. So yeah, yeah. So that, to close the episode out, we'd like to ask, well, what would Charon be doing now? So Caleb, what would if he were still around and kicking, and assuming he had full faculty, right? It's not just thirty years of Alzheimer's, but <laughs> but what would he be doing now in twenty twenty two? So the temptation, I think, the tempting answer is he would be writing aphorisms on Twitter. Right. But I and maybe this sounds uh, lazy, but I, I think he would be actually be doing the exact same thing he was doing, which is being holed up in an apartment in a major city right. and maybe taking walks and scribbling in a notebook and having a, a very strange relationship with a live in partner. Right. Trying to trying to dodge history. Yeah, because it, yeah. he went, he observed so many changes and lived in basically the same fashion throughout all of it that I, mm -hmm. I did, even for as monumental, for as momentous as we think these changes have been more recently, I, I, I think he would have kept the same distance. Yeah, I, and I, I I meant to point this out too. I want, and I'll just say it now. I mean, the last I think about forty, at least thirty years of his life, maybe a little bit more than that, he lived in a remodeled attic. Yeah, apartment. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and he was concerned when some new owners took it over, that like they were gonna like. I don't even think it was legal technically for him to be living up there, you know, <laughs> according to the local ordinances or whatever. So, yeah, I think you're. I think yeah, that seems right to me. Yeah, Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, I'll co-sign all of that with yeah. the caveat that I think he might have, maybe have a a Twitter account, or he might be one of these intellectuals who has a team. 
mm. who maybe have caught up to him. You know, this question is always sort of abstract, right? Because at mm-hmm. what age and right. blah, blah, blah. But you sort of imagine the older man, maybe he's got a group that is curating an account uh, of, of, yeah. his, of his uh, writing and, and spitting it out. I guess we could do that now. But I, yeah. I, this idea of like that you can be an aphorist is so exciting to me. Uh, <laughs> it really is. But yeah, Brad. Great job. And Caleb, you had a lot of a lot of color, a lot of insight. I really appreciate it so much when we're going to come back for another 30 minutes on the after dark and talk about the Austrian corporal. Uh, (laughs) And uh, we'll see. We'll see how uh, Charan, uh, Charan, 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 Charan. You got it. Yeah, I'm doing my best there. (laughs) Uh, How he kind of rolled that back and what he figured out. It feels like this guy was metal. He was he, he went so hard all the time. There's not a wasted line. Everything's heavy. And so if you're an aspiring black metal Romanian musician, yeah. <laughs> you've got lyrics for days. You really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Anything, anything else you got to say on the on the core episode, Brad, before we uh, we come back for the After Dark? No, I, I don't. Um, subscribe on Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod if you want to get the After Dark episodes and also be in on the ground floor for the Book Ends Reading Club that we're starting up next year. We're going to be reading first off Heart of Darkness, but we've got a bunch of others lined up. Um, so it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. And these are these are not low lifts. So, Caleb, again, thank you for your time. Yes. This is a, the better part of an entire evening. We're yeah. very <laughs> grateful to have you. Thank you for having me. It was of been course. Cool. Yeah. All right. But life is pain. Pain. <laughs> I don't know if I should ever be more. Oh. <laughs>